Welcome to Sacred Realms. It's a great day in Hyrule, y'all. Welcome to Sacred Realms, a Zelda retrospective podcast. I'm your host, Lyndon Willoughby. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Matt Willoughby. How you doing tonight, Matt? That's me. I am the co-host who is semi-always here. Uh, I'm good. I It's been a fun uh, another week with Tears of the Kingdom. Uh, diving in, I think I'm up to 60-ish hours now. Um, and man, I spent a lot of time this week doing a lot of fun stuff. So... Um, we are, and just for anybody who doesn't follow us on socials or isn't on our Discord, uh, we're extending our Tears of the Kingdom uh, season. It was originally supposed to be four weeks. We're going to do six. So we're here to talk a little bit about some very specific things. Um, and I'm very excited. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. I think this is going to be a spectacular episode. Going to be a bit more spoilery than uh, some of the ones that we've done so far. But not to worry. I will uh, I will let everybody know exactly kind of what we're going to be talking about and give, uh, give folks plenty of opportunity to bounce out of here um, if that's something that you have not played yet and you don't want spoiled for you. Um, we will be giving you a heads up before we get into it. So. As long as you promise to come back later and listen to it. As long as you promise to come back later and listen to it. I, uh, I think it'll be well worth your time. Matt, we had to, we're recording this one kind of at the last minute. We had to push it out just a smidge. Uh, you know, the uh, we're, we're in that season of, uh, of Texas late spring, early summer where um, the allergies are just out to kill us all, um, you know, like uh, like many gloom hands rising from the ground, just <laughs> chasing us, thirsty yeah. thirsty for our blood. I was thinking the the mosquitoes are out currently, and I was thinking about them as compared to like the gibdo moths, and I'm just like, uh, get away from me. Compared to the what? Gibdo moths? What's a gibdo moth? Oh, Lyndon. Go to the Gerudo depths and you'll find out. Okay. <laughs> Neat. That sounds fun and interesting. Doesn't Can't wait. It? Doesn't it? It is. I thought it was really fun. <laughs> cool. Um, yeah, no, I mean, it's, uh, yeah, Tuesday night. We're going to release this on Wednesday. A little bit of editing for me to do on the back end. But you know what? That's okay. Um, definitely worth it. Uh, the trade-off is that we sound like our, our normal human selves. Um, yes. And, you know, not the, you know, version of me that's been consumed by, like, evil pollen that I was yesterday. So, like, uh, not on like a cordyceps infection upon, uh, those unwitting uh, uh, humans. It has certain specific differences, but yes, you know, <laughs> sure. Close enough. Why not? Um, regardless of all of that, we do have some tears of the kingdom to get into and talk about tonight. Um, it has still just been such a blast playing through this game over the last few weeks. Uh, you know, next week we are going to hit one month out from release, which is crazy. Um, doesn't feel like that long ago that we were counting down one month until release. So being on the other side of that now, it's, it's good times, Matt. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's been, uh, it's been a lot of fun and, um, you know, uh, as we look forward to our next season, which our, our next real season is going to be Phantom Hourglass. I think it's going to be 
Um, it'll be it'll be fun. I, I am looking forward to playing that game. Um, I am sad to I, of course, won't stop playing Tears of the Kingdom, but, um, you know, it'll be it'll be good to get back into the routine, I guess. But, uh, man, this game is really just truly something special. It really is. Um, give me a quick rundown, Matt. How are you looking on on your your metrics in game, your shrines, light roots, Korok seeds? Yeah, all yeah. So I've got um, how many hearts do I have here? I have whatever three left. Whatever three away from one full row is, I think that's 12. I think you get 15 hearts in each row. Um, I currently have, well, I have a ton of Korok seeds that I've turned in, three in my inventory. All right, so I've done 71 shrines, uh, 24 light roots, 43 Korok seeds is, uh, is where I'm at so far. And Sorry, I, how many light roots? Uh, 24. Okay. Uh, most of those, so I I did this funny thing where I went into the depths to kind of explore around and I was going to fill in some map. I was going to kind of just go around the area that I've been in game. So a lot of like uh, Hebra, Tabantha, uh, Hyrule Field kind of stuff ended up all the way down in Gerudo, uh, all the way to the very edge of the map. So I don't really know how that happened, but. It did, and it was great, and I had a lot of fun. Okay. Um, so that's where I got most of my light roots, is an area of the world that I haven't even explored to this point. Okay. <laughs> so, so currently I am looking at, see, 45 shrines, 10 light roots, 52 Korok seeds, and I have 10 hearts. Uh, what are the little, the, the dots that are above? Oh, is that Skyview Towers? Yeah, I think so. That, that, that can't be right. I've got more. It says five. I've got more than five Skyview Towers. Oh, uh, is that just however many you have in your inventory of Blessings of Light right now? Yes. Yep. 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 There you go. Because I have three in my inventory currently. Okay, cool. Nice that it tells you that. Yeah, I like yeah. that. So regardless, you know, got a got a pretty fair amount of game under the belt at this point. Um, you know, enough to <laughs> uh, and enough to be. Um, very confident in some of our earlier guesses that this was going to be like solidified as one of our you know favorite games of all time probably for sure um it uh, just it doesn't let up i will say that one of my more proud achievements currently is that i have four and two-thirds complete batteries so um that was a fun I, i'm really kind of enjoying that i do think that this game has a bit of an economy problem. There's a lot of economies going on simultaneously that can be sure. somewhat confusing. So I think so far that's one of my main complaints. But other than that, um, it's been fun upgrading the battery and I'm looking forward to doing more of that and just seeing what kind of crazy zone I creations I can come up with. Well, as longtime players of Destiny, neither of us are strangers to economies on top of economies. So. Yeah, that's accurate. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I, I spent about three hours in the depths the other night and uh, explored quite a lot. Um Definitely. So collected a ton of Zonite. Um, I'm, I'm way behind you on battery. Um, I just haven't spent nearly as much time down there. And so I'm, I'm at the I'm at a point where I'm kind of having to make myself peel off and go spend time mm -hmm. doing that just because um, I want to be interacting with Zonite devices more than I am right now. Sure. And the main reason that I'm not is just because the battery is not there. Right. For sure. And like the effort involved in creating something for it to only, you know, putter along for you know, 20 or 30 seconds, maybe, uh, doesn't really feel worth it. But once that battery is extended, I know I'll be doing quite a lot more of it. So, um, 
I, I think, so like I said, got a bit of exploration down there under my belt uh, the other night. I think I'm going to go and start marching on towards my next dungeon area. And then after I clear that, I'm probably going to try and fill in as much of the depths in that corner of the map as I can and just really collect a lot of uh, Zonite and get that get that battery. Pump those battery numbers. Those yeah. are rookie numbers. I got to pump them up. Yeah, absolutely. I think, so I'm, I'm currently in a phase of like, which... Uh, story arc do i want to do next and like i desire i think to do the gerudo region um i know that for in some ways like uh i believe pura is the one that tells you this um the correct quote-unquote order to do them is uh rito goron zora gerudo so i know i'm going to be kind of going out of order if i do that so i'm struggling with my inner uh do i do things in the quote-unquote correct order or do i just do what this game is designed to let you do which is whatever you want whenever you want so um you know tbd i guess we'll see well i guess we'll check in on uh check in on the resolution of that situation at a later time how long do you think it's going to be before you go and actually head towards another dungeon because it's been uh been about two weeks for you since you cleared your last one that's true yeah i'll probably uh i'll probably start heading that way honestly like i feel like i've done enough uh side questy things and um i'm pretty happy with where i'm at in the game um that i feel like i think it's time to time to go do something uh do something with it so we're gonna go expand our uh, repertoire a little bit more as they as they say as they do say sounds good to me matt of course we'll catch up uh more next week uh before we get out of this special little mini season about exactly how much game we've been able to get done in a six-week span of time tonight however we are not here to talk generally about the structure of the game we're not here to talk about dungeons we're not here to talk about anything except for the story as told in the memories side quest that this game has to offer, uh, that would be the Tears of the Dragon side quest. So um, if that is something that you have not done, now's the time to bounce out of here because what we're basically going to do is cover the entire sequence of cutscenes that leads from the beginning of the game up until the culmination of the Tears of the Dragon memory quest. So um, obviously that does not include any endgame stuff. Um Matt and I, I mean, like like we just said, we've each beaten one dungeon apiece, so we're still not anywhere close to beating the game. Um, but, you know, the Tears of the Dragon is definitely kind of a it's analogous to the memories side quest that happened in Breath of the Wild, right, where it's telling a separate ish story that is nevertheless connected to the one that you're playing so yep. um and it can be completed at any point basically from the beginning of the game i know i've spoken to a lot of people who just kind of went and got those all cleared out first just because you know we're, we're all like aching for story stuff here you mm-hmm. know so I, I know a lot of people have done it but regardless if you have not done it then yes now's the time to bounce come back listen to this episode after you have completed the tears of the dragon little quest line and trust me you'll know when you get to the end of it yes um and 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 just in case uh, to be extra uber super clear about what the ending point of this discussion is going to be after housekeeping if you're still here i'm going to say what it is um you know i i think even saying where the quest ends is just a tad spoilery so if you haven't done it yet probably don't stick around but i guess if you're a little confused about what we're talking about or if you just don't care about spoilers then yeah uh hang in because it's going to be a ride matt what do you say we get some housekeeping out of the way real quick and then uh, we'll dive into a quick discussion about what the format of this thing is going to be 
I am always a fan of housekeeping, so let's go ahead and do it. Alrighty. Are you always a fan of housekeeping? I mean, I keep a very tidy house, so yes. Chris, so do I. No, I don't. No, you don't. No, I ne- don't. You never have. That has never been one of your strong suits. I try. It's on my bucket list. Have a clean house. <laughs> that might happen sometime before I die. All right. If y'all didn't know, Sacred Realms is a weekly re-examination of The Legend of Zelda, one little slice at a time. Sacred Realms drops every Wednesday and is available on all major podcast networks. Every week, we play a new section of a Zelda game, and then we sit down here to talk and to drop our hot takes. If that sounds fun to you, please head over to Apple Podcasts, hit that subscribe button, and be sure to leave us a review. Five-star reviews are greatly appreciated, and they have a chance to get a shout-out here on the show. If you want more Sacred Realms in your life, you can head over to patreon.com slash sacredrealmspod to get access to our Discord channel, listener mail, vote on what game we play next, and so much more. Additionally, one of the benefits that Master Sword patrons and above get is that we read their names every week here on the show. Those legendary individuals are William, Connor, Shepherd Street, Matthew, Chris, Daniel, Fallout 907, Kelso, Tiffany, The Star, Daxel, Patrice, Stephanie, Darknuck, Brian, George, Mike, Dylan, Lennon, Melanie, Kolku, Aiden, Rowan, Josh, Nick, Dante, Gep, Brittany, Davey, Haru the Mighty, Derek, Albert, Mark, Andy, Cameron, Ben, Daniel, Nick D underscore TV, Travis, Christian, Jonathan, Hyrule Interviews, a.k.a. last week's guest, Max Nichols, Garrett, Andrew. These are the most legendary of individuals, and I would uh, go on a cross-continental journey searching for mystical pools of dragon tears with any one of them at any time. That I can absolutely agree to because Mystical Pool of Dragon Tears alone sounds really fun. Well, I mean, cross-country vacation was like baked into that, too. I mean, Uh, also true. I feel like that's like the most benign and least dangerous thing that we've kind of baked into (laughs) this little deal, you know, (laughs) least bodily dangerous. But spending that much time with any one person or group of people is uh, hazardous in its own way. So, well, um, I guess if you have a certain a certain uh, antisocial flair to your personality, then (laughs) are you you saying that that's what you have, Matt? I mean, Lyndon, you and I would kill each other if we went (laughs) cross vacation. You know that. <laughs> Probably. Let's not do it. No, let's not kill each other. <laughs> Sounds good. All right, y'all. But uh, with the housekeeping out of the way, let's go ahead and talk about the way what you were about to say it. Oh, yeah. Let's go ahead and talk about the way that this episode is going to function. And I think if we could give this a uh, a little nickname, Matt, if we could give this episode a little nickname, it would be the uh, Oops All Sacred Realms Rundown <laughs> Plot Recaps, right? <laughs> I was going to say Oops All Clip Shows, but yeah, that works too. <laughs> it's only a clip show if we've done it before. Oh, good point. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Nah, never. Never on this and podcast, We Matt. don't. We, well, said, we did. Well, yeah. Uh, we did that. We did that. We did a clip show. But we like, it was, it was taste, a fun clip it show. It was tastefully done. Yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't season finale of episode, of season two, uh, next the TNG. Yeah, yeah, it wasn't that. No, no. May it never be. No, God, no. Shades of Grey is not something we're ever shooting for on this, mm, on this no. podcast. Um, no, so the way that this is going to work is that we are going to set the switch up on the table and we are basically going to watch each memory. Uh, we will cut that audio out. We'll we'll say we're starting now, ending now. Um, and then after each one, we're going to discuss what happens in it and then move on to the next one. And by the end of it, we will have kind of uh, discussed the entirety of the Tears of the Dragon quest line. Now, the way that this can work, if you want it to, is if you feel very familiar with these cutscenes already, then feel free to just uh, listen at normal speed and uh, you should have no problem keeping up with what we're talking about. Uh, however, if you want to get in on the fun, 
one and watch each cutscene, which you can do from your adventure log on the Switch if you've already seen the cutscene. Uh, watch along with us as we're kind of doing this whole thing. Then you know what? I'm not going to tell you not to. That sounds like a fun way to interact with some pod. And uh, if I was not the one making it, that's probably the way that I would do it. <laughs> Are you giving the people advice on how to do pod, Lyndon? I'm just saying, uh, I think it might give us all a feeling of camaraderie together, right? Yes. The people listening to the episode, the people making the episode. It's just a, uh, the warm fuzzies can be had here, mm, I think. And we all know that you're a big fan of the warm fuzzies. I am a big fan of the warm fuzzies. So um, just to clarify one or two things. So thing number one, the first memory that we are going to be watching is actually not technically part of the tears of the dragon quest line it is uh um it is technically uh how do i describe it it's, it's a memory that you get from visiting the deku tree in korok forest and we will not be talking about korok forest itself we will not be talking about the ways that you get there i'm not going to spoil any of that stuff but it is the first chronological memory in this whole sequence of things um and then i said earlier that we'd kind of be letting you know uh where this is all going to end at the final cutscene that we will be discussing is and again if you haven't finished this maybe bounce now if you're still here, the final cutscene that we're going to be watching and discussing is the one in which you retrieve the Master Sword at the end of this quest line. So, a um, lot and lots and lots of lore to get into here. A lot of really cool story moments. Matt, I think uh, just general thoughts before we get into this. I think you and I both felt that this was incredibly strong story content front to back. Absolutely. I think that um, this... I, I think the advent of the stories at of the memories as storytelling devices um was a huge plus in breath of the wild and i think we we had some pretty positive things to say about it um in that season and i think that this has taken that uh storytelling device and dialed it up to uh i don't know about up to 11 but up it's it's dialed it up quite a few notches, and I think it is really a fantastic way of telling a story that they pulled off very well um, and was incredibly meaningful uh, throughout. Completely agree. Agree with everything Matt just said. Don't want to get uh, too much conversation out of the way before we actually get into this thing, so just going to leave it there. But with that being said, it's time to dive into some memories, y'all. Would you say with all that being said? Uh, I would, and I would say it on purpose, knowing full well that it's a thing that I do a lot of. <laughs> a little bit of an in-joke. That's that's fine, though, is, you know? Is it your catchphrase? It's all, it's all, part, of, it's all part of making pod. TV. Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah. cool, cool, cool. Yeah. I'm, I'm surprised you didn't know that, Matt. All right, and then first memory. Okay. <laughs> I'm gonna leave that in. <laughs> no, please don't. <laughs> in terms of like our accents and impersonations and stuff, I feel like that was actually top twenty five percent, which it's like really sad. Still, still like bottom one percent in the grand scheme of that kind of thing. But uh, yeah, I, I don't know. You know what? Tell you what, I I will reserve judgment until I've heard it in the edit. Yeah, Sound good? Fair, fair enough. Okay. Whatever. Okay. Alrighty. Memory number one, the title of this memory is The Master Sword's Power. And here we go. Yeah, Korok Forest. Okay. I'll say it again. And just to reiterate real quick, this is a memory that you get separate from the Tears of the Dragon quest line. This one is acquired from the Deku Tree in Korok Forest. Go see the tree, Pope. Go see the tree, Pope. 
All right, memory number one down. I'm going to kick this off with just a quick recap at what we just watched. So basically, this scene starts with Link and Zelda entering Korok Forest, uh, walking up to the pedestal of the Master Sword, exactly as we saw it in Breath of the Wild. Uh, This, we are led to believe, takes place sometime uh, immediately before the start of Tears of the Kingdom. Uh, Link and Zelda have come to Korok Forest to retrieve the Master Sword, which appears to have been uh, stored here to heal itself after the events of Breath of the Wild. Link and Zelda speak with the Great Deku Tree. Uh, The Deku Tree... Uh, informs us that the Master Sword is capable not only of healing itself over time, but in the presence of great power, uh, it is capable of absorbing some of that power into itself um, and growing even more powerful than its current base form. Link and Zelda thank the Deku Tree and then leave, presumably to go begin their quest underneath of Hyrule Castle um, as a sequence of events which are going to kick off this entire game. So let's talk about this real quick, Matt. Let's do. There's a few things that I want to, a few observations I want to make. Um, big one right off the bat. I'm wondering why the Master Sword is even back here right now. Yeah, so I, I thought that as well originally when I first saw this, and I think just my my head cannon or whatever is that um, the fight with Calamity Ganon took its toll on the Master Sword as well, and yeah. it just needed because you know I mean even on your journey now once you get the Master Sword uh, and back in uh, Breath of the Wild as well, uh, the Master Sword could break quote unquote right right because weapon durability is a thing, grr. Um, and it would have to recharge in your pack, right? So I'm just thinking if you bathed the master sword in your um, in your salty man tears about weapon degradation, would it absorb that power? It into would absorb itself? the power of rage and frustration. <laughs> I don't know that that's good for the master sword because it's supposed to bathe in like holy light, right? So I don't, uh, don't think that that's exactly the the power I was looking for. But anyway, potentially. Um, so I think that it's just recharging after its bout with uh calamity ganon and you know the manifestation of the curse of demise so you know fee probably needs some opportunity to recoup a little bit after that yeah i agree i you know the thing is i wonder how much of this was done out of necessity of trying to account for the fact that you don't necessarily need to even get the master sword in, in order breath, to beat the last game in breath yeah. of the wild um i think obviously i feel like this is a balancing act right like you've got to make narrative content that is not reading your save file or at least like we know it is in some ways but it's not reading the save file of your last game the way that we might with like a mass effect right sure so it doesn't know like what branching decisions you took throughout the last game sure and so what they're having to do is make cut scenes that are as much as possible honoring everybody's experience in breath of the wild and also honoring the experiences of people who didn't play that game at all. Right. And so I'm just wondering, like, I think your headcanon, that's definitely the way that I took it and the way that I think most people probably will, uh, because I think most people who played the last game got the master sword in that game. Right. But for those who didn't, I wonder if this was just kind of like a little safety, like escape hatch, right? Where it could be like, yes, that could be true. Or you could maybe just supposed to, uh, you you might just be supposed to think this is the Master Sword um, 
the way that Zelda deposited it in front of the great Deku tree during the memories quest in breath of the wild, right? Like after link kind of got knocked around by guardians and then put in the shrine of resurrection link drops the, you know, admittedly very not healthy looking master sword in the pedestal at the end of that whole sequence of events. So I'm not saying that like, you know, I'm not saying that's canon, Mm -hmm. right? I'm just saying like, maybe, maybe this cutscene was designed so that it could play to either or I think, that's potentially possible. I think it's more likely that this cutscene was set here to key up the payoff of the entire story. In well, memory, sure, right? like, sure. I, I don't think that they're trying to close that gap. Like, I don't think Nintendo feels the need to close that gap. Like mm-hmm. they don't in a lot of other places in, in the game. Like every time you talk to a recurring character, whether you played breath of the wild or not, they all react to you the same way. Like, yeah. Oh, it's good to see you again and blah, blah, blah. So I don't think that that factored into the equation here. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'm wrong, but I, I just, Nintendo has that, um, confidence yeah. in its storytelling to not, cater to the lowest mm-hmm. common denominator and i don't mean that in a disparaging way but of like they're not catering to people who didn't pray about play breath of the wild in a different way than they are to those who did yeah so no no way to be 100 sure but i think uh i think you're probably right but i did just think it was it was just kind of a weird little moment of storytelling right like yeah. i think there's a gap here that well and, and the other thing is is like when we leave Link at the end of Breath of the Wild, he's still very much holding the Master Sword. And even at the, if you get the post credit scene because you completed all the memory quests and then you go and talk to Zelda and she's like, all right, well now we're going to go around Hyrule and start to rebuild stuff. Link still has the Master Sword at that point. Yeah. So like, obviously he dropped it off at the Deku Tree sometime in the last seven years and it's just been there. Yeah. But like when and why? Mm-hmm. And Was that their first, like, there are just other questions there. I don't think they're necessarily important questions. Mm -hmm. They're just nitpicky questions that I'm interested in because I'm a super nerd uh, about Zelda, particularly. Sure, sure. um, But yeah, I I think the main gist here is to set up the nature of the Master Sword, Link's relationship to it, and also, like, its special capacity to heal and increase in power over time. Yeah, uh, definitely some very important narrative stuff getting set up here. I I think that that's really fun because that kind of goes back to the very creation of the Master Sword, right? The way that it was fashioned in the first place from the Goddess Sword is by being imbued by, uh, like being imbued with the holy fire of of the flames, the sacred flames from the surface in Skyward Sword, right? So uh, this very much goes all the way back to the very beginning of this sword and similar things have happened to it over the course of its entire history so i uh, definitely think that this is a nice way to kind of canonize that um a, a nice way to canonize the fact that you're able to like upgrade it in certain games too yeah you know? it, it's a good acknowledgement of it and um i i appreciate it for that for sure cool all right do we have anything else we want to say about this one before we move on i'm good Alrighty. Memory number two is titled Where Am I? And it's a subtitle on the quest log, or excuse me, on the adventure log screen is that this is the first official cutscene um, of the Tears of the Dragon memory quest. You find this one at the um at the uh, New Serene Stable Geoglyph, and that's the first one that you're really pointed towards after landing on the surface. That's where you meet Impa, and that's what kind of kicks off the entire Geoglyph uh, Tears of the Dragon questline. So let's go ahead and watch. 
All right, Matt, why don't you tell us a little bit about what we just saw? Yeah, so in this one, we see the aftermath of our confrontation with Mummy Ganon um, from Zelda's perspective. Um, we always, of course, we awoke in uh, the Great Sky Isles to the aftermath of the Mummy Ganon confrontation in our start of the game. But now we get to see it from Zelda's perspective. Uh, Zelda kind of appears out of thin air in a bright flash of light in a forested area of Hyrule. It actually looks pretty close to the place where she tried to feed us that hot-footed frog in Breath of the Wild. You remember that? Yeah. Yeah, it, yeah. Looks, it looks similar. Um, but she appears, and it's it's a much... It's serene and there's no ruins around. There's no uh, floating Hyrule castle in the sky surrounded by gloom energy. Um, There's not even a Hyrule castle that I could see anywhere. And she's just kind of unconscious. Uh, We hear a character off to the side say, oh, dear, and kind of run up to her. And you see a human hand with some uh, tribal markings uh, enter the screen and kind of rouse Zelda, shakes her awake. And she's startled and, and scrambles backwards. Uh, but the two individuals who have awakened her are uh, a human woman uh, with darker skin and uh, those tribal markings all up and down her arms and on her face uh, and some very ornate looking jewelry and a Zonai uh, male who is towering and tall, uh, very huge white mane. And if uh, we know him to be Raru just because we've met him uh, in his ghostly form. Um, but the human female introduces herself as uh, Sonya. And uh, before Raru introduces himself, he asks who Zelda is. And Zelda uh, responds that she is the daughter of King Rome of Hyrule, Princess Zelda. And uh, Raru kind of chuckles a little bit and says, well, that's an unusual answer because uh, last I checked, we were the king and queen who founded Hyrule. (laughs) So uh, what's up with that? And, uh, you know, then he introduces himself as Raru and uh, Zelda kind of has a moment of revelation of so if you're King Raru and Queen Sonya, that must mean and then we fade to black. And obviously we know that that means she is in the extreme distant past. Yeah. Okay, so a few things to talk about here. One, just we're talking about the topography, the geography, landmarks, um, obviously talking about the absence of some things that, you know, tell us that we're no longer in the present timeline of Tears of the Kingdom. There are a few things that are very interesting to me. One is that you can actually see the crest of the Temple of Time in the sky uh, on the landscape, during this memory, you can kind of see it off in the background mm-hmm. in around some trees. So uh, that does lend some credence to what Raru says at the beginning of Tears of the Kingdom, which is that in his time, the Temple of Time was on the surface and not in the sky. So very interesting there. Um, you know, I, I think that this is is really fun and interesting because time hijinks always make for a really great <laughs> plot device. <laughs> Unlike Spock, we are fans of hijinks. Fans of hijinks, yeah. And uh, I, I think that this sets the tone for a very interesting start to this whole sequence of events, right? Um, I remember, so when I watched this cutscene for the first time, I thought how cool it was getting a little bit more context around Raru. I remember um, being afraid that we weren't going to see too much more of him after we left the Great Sky Island and uh, thinking that that was a because I really like Raru as a character. Absolutely. And so this kind of sets the expectation that we're going to be seeing a lot more of Raru as we go throughout this quest. Um, not a lot to go on here just in terms of character moments. It's not a very long cutscene. Um, mm-hmm. 
But definitely very cool to see the canonical first Queen of Hyrule, not even just like obviously, yes, canonical in the games, but we've never seen a Queen of Hyrule in another Zelda game before. So I know it's really, really cool. And um, she does bear a striking resemblance to Zelda in a lot of ways. The the facial features are similar. The even the, the way she speaks, the kindness of her voice, those kinds of things, they're very similar to how Zelda carries herself. Um, so seeing Sonya... Um, and her her immediate thought with this strange person that appeared out of thin air is to make sure that the person is OK and like the kindness that is evident in that by itself. Um, Raru is a little more reserved, I think. Um, mm. And and I get the impression later in some of the memories that the Zonai as a race are a little more imperious and a little more uh, high and mighty. Yeah. Not in yeah. like a not in like a bad way, but just a well, kind of in a forerunner sort of way. Exactly. They're they're definitely different. Yeah. They're not human. Yeah. And um, he carries himself that way very much and throughout this entire sequence. Mm-hmm. And um I, I appreciate the the characterization that they have. Even in these short little snippets, you get to f- a feeling for who they are as people. So yeah. um, I like that. So this gives us some immediate lore questions around when this actually takes place. We're going to come back to discussions about the actual timeline and, and which one we think that all of this is happening in a little bit later with some of the other memories. But just for right now, uh, we're talking about the founding of the Kingdom of Hyrule. So we know that that puts us squarely after the events of Skyward Sword. It seems like quite a long time after the events of Skyward Sword, right? Because even though the Kingdom of Hyrule is brand new as of, you know, these two people founding it together, um, it's still it still seems like there's been time for civilization to be established on the surface, right? Which takes quite a while. Um, it seems like we're several generations past because, uh, the Zonai as a concept, as a race of people, um, as a, you know, uh, who, who exist in this world and who, who were not present in Skyward Sword seems to be just sort of a matter of course. Right. Um, and we, we get more hints to this later as to the influence of the Zonai in Hyrule. But uh, I get the impression that even though this is pre kingdom of Hyrule, it's, still a long time after the end of Skyward Sword. Yeah, I mean, it kind of has to be right, because what what we're seeing is a a different race of people in the Zonai. Uh, This Sonya looks nothing like a, you know, daughter or even granddaughter of what the Zelda from Skyward Sword would have looked like. She has much darker skin tones. Uh, She's taller. Uh, Her ears are uh, are, uh, more flat yeah. and, uh, longer. So uh, there's definitely a lot of differences here. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I, I agree overall. Um, I'm curious to know if we ever get any official answer about any sort of timeline here, but I know we have some theorizing to do later. Absolutely do. Um, not too much more to really get into with this one. I, I don't think, do you? No, I think I think I'm good here. Okay, sounds good. Oh, I think we should say that it was it was made very obvious by uh, the by the memory that Zelda's time travel hijinks were a direct cause of the odd tear shaped stone that she picked up from Ganondorf's head that fell off of him. So um, we should that gets, make that clear. That gets brought up in the next one. Yeah, but it's also it like was pulsing. Oh, gotcha. Okay, cool, cool. Sounds good. All right. Well, speaking of the next memory, this is memory number three titled An Unfamiliar World. And I was actually going to try and say like, oh, this is the geoglyph you get this one from. I don't remember. Actually, I do remember this one. This Uh, is here. I can tell you this is the one you get over by Rito Village. 
and it is castle shaped. Yes, it is the castle shape. Okay. I, I have that pulled up so I can just look at it. Okay, sounds good. All right, memory number three, an unfamiliar world. Here we go. All right, so let's talk about what we just watched. After the preceding conversation, we catch up with Rauru, Sonia, and Zelda. Uh, they actually appear to be on the outcrop of rock outside of the Shrine of Resurrection, uh, which overlooks Hyrule Field from the very introduction of Breath of the Wild. So that's certainly a thematically important place for anyone to be standing. Sure. Um, Zelda takes in the scenery around Hyrule Field as she knows it in her time. Uh, as you said before, Matt, nothing is there. Hyrule Castle, none of the major landmarks. Um, we can see Death Mountain in the distance, but nothing looks developed right so <laughs> zelda has accepted that this is indeed the land or the time of the very distant past when hyrule was first being founded um raru accepts that it's very strange for all of them zelda's trying to impress upon sonia and raru that it's very important for her to get back to her own time because she has uh ganondorf-esque things to deal with <laughs> there's stuff going on and she wants to get back and uh, try and put it to rights. Unfortunately, nobody seems exactly sure how to do that. What Sonia, however, is sure of is that Zelda seems to contain both the powers of light and powers over time. Uh, this is significant because Rauru himself contains power over light and Sonia contains power over time. Sonia further theorizes that Zelda must have a blood connection to the two of them, uh, thus being their distant, distant, distant descendant. Zelda is frustrated that a clear path back toward the present is not presenting itself, uh, but Sonia reassures her that wisdom takes time and that they will be able to find a solution together. Rauru posits that if they can visit his sister, Minoru, who is a scholar in the history of the Zonai people, they might be able to hash out a better way to get Zelda back where she belongs. And so the plan is to go visit Minoru at the royal castle. Okay. Lot to talk about here. Mm -hmm. Thing number one, it's pretty explicitly stated that Zelda is supposed to be the descendant of both Rauru and Sonia, right? Correct. Okay. So I have a few questions, and <laughs> as much as I just want to make this like for chuckles, like, uh, how does that work, right? <laughs> um, I don't know, right? I don't know. Damn it. That's a... It's a video game. I don't know. Let's <laughs> let's just accept that it does work. Um, right. Yeah. Um, because that's 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 the journey the game's taking you on. So yes, it works. Um, question that I have is uh, things that happen in later memories. It does not seem that there is an heir. An heir. Right. right? I was thinking the same thing. Like yeah. we, we and this is semi spoilery for the rest of the memories, but. At least from where I'm sitting, from what I've seen in the game, we never get a glimpse at who this heir and forefather mother of Zelda is. Mm -hmm. So very curious about that. Um, it is possible. It's very possible that Rauru and Sonia have a child that we have just not seen. Oh, for sure. I mean, right. that has to be it. Like, I mean, it has to be. Yeah. So um, we'll, we'll just take that at face value. Yeah, uh, I, I think that's the only way that we really can take it right now because nothing else makes too much sense. I think there's some really interesting talk going on here about 
the way in which Zelda has kind of genetically acquired some of her powers, I think for a very long time, we just kind of chalked that up to the influence of the Triforce of Wisdom, for one, mm-hmm. uh, which is kind of passed down throughout the Hyrulean royal family, but also just the fact that Zelda is canonically the reincarnation of the goddess Hylia, right? Right. And I think that one's probably the more important and more relevant one to be talking about because we don't actually know that anybody has any pieces of Triforce within them in the era of the wild, right? Well, we do because when Zelda fights Calamity Ganon, all of her power manifests. You know what? You're right. So, so we know that you're right. Zelda has the power of the Triforce or a power of the Triforce. We never get any, any commentary on. Yeah courage or power and we're not even really necessarily told that zelda's is the triforce of wisdom it just has the triforce uh sigil yeah well and 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 most importantly the word triforce is never mentioned the triforce as a thing appears to once again not be a going concern in this game um I, so for that reason, that that's why I was kind of saying I think I think the bigger deals here are going to be the reincarnation of the spirit of the goddess Hylia throughout the line of of Zelda, and then also the manifestation of Demise's curse in the form and of Ganon, Ganon slash Ganondorf. Right? Sure. Those things seem to be alive and well here, right? Yeah. Um. So it and and to that point, I just it, it does make me wonder. Uh, how much of Zelda's like, you know, throughout the game series, Zelda has got access to uh, time powers, to sealing magic, to light magic. And it does make me wonder how much are we supposed to think that that has to do with combinations of Triforce and goddess influences and how much of it just is her genetic predisposition to those things, given that her ancestors had them. Uh, uh, I, I actually should say. If we're to believe that Sonia is the blood ancestor of Zelda, then it makes sense that Sonia also comes from the same line of, of Hylia. Hylia. As, okay. Through. Yeah. So there's that. Yeah. So, I mean, you, you have to kind of follow that logic as well. And I, and I agree with you. I think that the important lineage here is the maternal or matriarchal lineage of mother to daughter, mother to daughter, all the way down, which is odd in in, in some ways because apparently... Hyrule is a um, kingdom with a king, and it seems like the rulership is passed down from through the male line, unless rulership is passed down to the husband of Princess Zelda, and then that becomes way more interesting, because then it's up to the princess to find someone to be the next king, but not take that responsibility on herself. Well, I like to, my headcanon for this has always just been that the influence of the goddess uh crops up throughout the familial line as it's not just as every needed. single daughter. Yeah. Okay. I don't yeah. I don't think it's a case of like every generation has a daughter and they're all named Zelda. Right. Okay. I think that that probably makes a lot more sense than what I was I was getting way <laughs> yeah. too convoluted and I was getting way too like <laughs> medieval Europe with you, it. You were trying yeah. to figure out like the the rule the, the geneal rules. the genealogy of kings. Yeah, yeah. The, the laws of succession, like all <laughs> yeah. that. Yeah. 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 I, was, I was going Game of Thrones when we should have just been sticking with Zelda. So fair enough. Um yeah, no, that's fair. I th- I think um that's a that's a better way of looking at it. What I really liked most about this um, memory was the the little moments between Sonya and Raru. Like Son, like Raru's sitting there pondering silently, and Sonya elbows him. Like this young woman is in 
crisis. Can you like do something? And Raru looks at her like, like he's a classic dude, right? He right. Has no emotional intelligence about the situation. Sonya's there like, do something, you idiot. And he's like, I don't know what to do. And then Sonya like, just takes it on herself and is like, fine, I'll do it. Right. Like, it's just classic. It's very human. And I love, I love those little moments. Um, and Sonya continues to be that just kind person. I agree. And, you know, what I think is really nice is seeing this Zelda interacting with people in this way. Uh, the majority of the inter-character interaction we saw her uh, taking part in in Breath of the Wild was with her father. Right. Right. And that was obviously a very unhealthy relationship. A lot of pressure was involved. It was not a happy relationship. Um, and so this is striking a very different balance. Uh, Sonia is taking a very maternal, uh, much more kind of caring, um, a much more, I think, um, kind of humane approach towards Zelda and her feelings. Sure. Um, and sure. so it's nice seeing this version of the character in that situation just because she really she's been through the ringer. Um as we've come to know her so far. So yeah, absolutely. She, she's definitely had not an easy time. So it's nice to see Sonya really cultivating a, an era, mm -hmm. a, an air, an aura air of maternal protectiveness yeah. over her. And so we get a little teaser of Rauru's extended family. We know he has a sister. Her name is Minoru. Uh, last thing I want to say about this is that we are told that they're going to go off to the castle together. The castle, we, we don't get a clear picture of where that is exactly. We know that it's not where Hyrule Castle is because we're shown that like vast, empty expanse of field, right? Yep. Um, so definitely not in the same place. But I, def I, I had some questions, right? I mean... This kind of implies that a functional kingdom with a certain amount of a certain amount of infrastructure it has occurred, you know? Yeah. And especially now that we see these characters are standing on the Great Plateau, and since we know from Breath of the Wild that the Great Plateau is the birthplace of Hyrule, I'm wondering if the seat of the kingdom under the Zonai was located on the Great Plateau. Yeah, that, that's interesting. So uh, I'm not really sure where their castle is located um, because the, the location of the castle geoglyph is over by Rito Village. And it's also where the Hidden Temple is, which becomes important later. So the, well, I'm, the hidden I'm, temple is quite a, a bit further away. It's all the it's all the way down Tanagar Canyon, right, but, at the end of the Hebrew Range, right. But the the geoglyph is kind of close to that. Like it's it's around there, sure. Um, so unclear where the seat of power is, but I I I like the idea that it is the Great Plateau. I, I like that idea. I just I don't have confirmation of it. Yeah, sounds good. Okay, uh, anything else you want to say about this one before we move on? Uh, no, let's go on. Okay. All right. This will be memory number four. The title of this memory is Minoru's Council. And I really don't remember where this one was. I do. Oh, the, the, uh, ge the geoglyph. Oh, the geoglyph. Let me look at the album where I have all these pictures. This one is shaped like the Puripad or Sheikah Slate, whichever you prefer. And it is it's in Elden by over by Death Mountain. Yeah, it's kind of by the the um the woodland stable is kind of where it is. Okay. Awesome. So here we go. Memory number four, Minaru's Council. 
All right. So in this memory, we see Raru and Zelda talking to Raru's uh, older sister named Minoru. Um, and she is another Zonai, uh, the only female Zonai we've seen that I know of. Um, and she talks to Zelda, uh, about the Puripad, which Zelda brought to her to inspect. And, uh, you know, Minoru confirms that this is definitely technology, not from the time that they are currently inhabiting. Um, and she thinks that she can assist with getting the travel functionality. So the fast travel that we use in game is apparently canonically a real thing that the Puripad can do. Uh, it's not just like an in-game uh, thing. So that's cool, number one. Um, but if Minoru thinks she can get it working again. So she holds on to the Puripad for a little while, and then they start talking a little bit more about the secret stones and the powers that uh, they grant or in, in it turns out that they amplify. So Minoru talks about how her secret stone that she carries enables her to separate her spirit from her body, um, which sounds really cool. Um, we don't get any view of what that actually looks like, but uh, it sounds cool in theory. Um, Raru's secret stone enables him to use sacred purifying light to repel or destroy evil. And Zelda's sacred stone apparently uh amplifies both her powers of light and time, but more acutely uh, is attuned to her powers over time. So Minoru goes on to say that the sacred stones don't grant you mastery of this power. They only amplify it. So if Zelda doesn't know how to get herself home now, the stone isn't going to be able to just automatically allow her to do that. She's going to have to figure that out. Then they go on to talk about some other areas of time hijinks and some legends that Minoru knows about. Uh, stories of draconification is what she calls it, where individuals have swallowed a secret stone and it transforms them into an immortal dragon. But in the process of doing so, they lose the entirety of their identity, their mind and their heart. They no longer have a sense of who they were and they just become kind of an ethereal primal force of nature. Uh, much like the dragons that we see around the world, including in Breath of the Wild, Dinral, Farosh, and Nadra. Each one of those dragons had similar taglines in their uh, character profiles that said, you know, they're not not necessarily a malevolent uh, source of uh, of anything. They're just primal beings who just emit the energy that they embody. So uh, Minoru talks a little bit about that and, you know, they kind of bat that around a bit and then decide, you know, that doesn't sound like it's worth it. So, you know, it's interesting and maybe we'll look into it a little bit more, but that doesn't sound like the route we want to go. So Zelda is very uh, dismayed by all of this news and Raru has a brief moment of emotional intelligence to try to buoy her spirits and say, you know, there's still, uh, we haven't lost hope. We have time. Um, you know, you are welcome to hang out here and Sonya, I'm sure would be happy to help you work on your powers over time. And, uh, cause that's Sonya's powers as well as time control. So he says Sonya would be more than happy to help tutor her, um, in that way. So, uh, it seems like what we're going to be doing for the next couple of memories is, uh, talking through that process. So, um, that's kind of what we see here. Um, Lyndon, what did you, what did you think about that? So for one thing, I love hearing a little bit of canon and lore around the dragons, right? Mm -hmm. They were one of the cooler parts of Breath of the Wild, and I always had questions about what exactly they were. And we still kind of do, right? We don't get firm clarification on Dinral, Farash, Nadra. We don't know, are they, you know, 
uh, you know, are they um, human incarnations of the goddesses that swallowed secret stones? Are they sages that swallowed secret stones? Like, we, we are, don't. Are they just some random Zoni who had a secret stone and decided they wanted to become immortal? Yeah, we still don't know any of those things, but it is interesting to know the origin of the of the dragons in Breath of the Wild and Tears of the Kingdom. There was a fun little note of the dragon music going on behind all of that, which yeah. I thought was really great. Um, the subtlety of the music. Musical cues is a theme that we'll probably touch on a few more times throughout the memories. And it's always masterful. Yeah. It is just perfect. Yeah. I, I yeah, I agree. Um, I think that th- so there's a really fun moment that happens here, which is basically where everybody involved sort of gets in a circle and announces their X-Men powers, right? <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Um, which is, which is really great. Um, I mean, so like you said, uh, Minaru's, what exactly that means being, it, it seems like she can astral project, I guess, separating her spirit from her body. Yeah. I mean, that, that sounds about right. Um, I'm curious what the practical implication of that is like, and yeah. like what that means for her as a holder of a secret stone. And like, what does that allow her to do? Mm-hmm. And because Raru's is very obvious, repel and destroy evil. Cool. Yeah. Um, Minoru, what are you contributing to society by uh, separating yourself and, tr- and being in an astral plane? Yeah. Well, she <laughs> seems, I mean, Minoru seems like this She's era's, the smart person. Yeah. Th- she seems like this era's uh, Pura, right? Right. Um, so uh, very fun to hear more about the secret stones and exactly what they are and how they work. Uh, as our friend Joseph would call them, the magical apostrophes. You know, we get, uh, <laughs> we get a little more context around all of that. And it's fun to see the inside of a Zonai structure. Mm-hmm. Um she had a big library. Big library. It, it, so much care and attention was put into the creation of this environment that it makes me wonder if we don't end up seeing it. I would love to see Minoru's library. Like, like it's, it's somewhere it's, up there, right? It's got to be in one of those archipelagos. Well, I don't know because we still don't even necessarily know what those are or right. like how they I, got up there I or know. what that, the deal is. That's true. But I really hope we get to see Minoru's library. That yeah. would be really cool. I, I think w- that'd be great. One question I did have was, is Minoru the person that created the constructs? Because she had that construct that was waiting on her. She obviously has a mastery over technology of various forms. Yeah. Um, And, you know, you could theorize that the constructs maybe have Zonai souls in them. Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, it definitely I, I definitely get the impression that this kind of Zonai technology predates Minoru and Raru. So we get some we get some clues in later memories that point to the fact of uh, the Zonai having been a full civilization on the surface. Um, now it's just Minoru and Raru, right? Um, all the other Zonai are gone, but it does seem like they had a civilization on the surface for quite some time. And look, honestly, these have got to be the people who made the Lineru Sansi constructs, right? Like, yeah, that is 100% my head cannon. Like all the areas that we see in the Lineru region in Skyward Sword, I am choosing to believe until someone tells me otherwise that the Zonai created all of that because the constructs are just too similar to all the little, uh, what the scrappers and whatnot yeah. that were that were over there. Um, it's too convenient for me to ignore until Asia Numa comes to my house, knocks on my door and tells me that I'm wrong. Or at least updates Hyrule Historia. Or until that happens. So, um, but yes, I'm not sure. I do get the impression that, uh, that Minoru does have like a special construct that is a bit more, it's, this, this is kind of like, uh, this is kind of like her alpha five, right? She's Zordon yeah. and that's alpha five or, uh, R2D2. 
she's Anakin and that's R2-D2. I like Zordon and Alpha 5. <laughs> that's our first Power Rangers reference. So I know, you go. yay. <laughs> ding, ding, ding. <laughs> Got a new one, folks. Yeah. yeah. Uh, what did, what did you think about this memory map? Yeah, I think it's really great, and and I agree that the most interesting part of this whole thing was the talk about the dragons. Um, we talked a lot in Breath of the Wild about how much we loved the introduction of the dragons as you know those three beings, and in our more prolonged interaction with Nadra, freeing her, I think I think uh, her is the right pronoun um, from uh, the malice energy. So you know it's really fun to get more about that. Um, and I, I really, I really loved the detail that went into separating what Minoru looks like, uh, physically from her brother. She's, she's a very different looking character. Like she has the same, uh, jackal like face features. So, um, but that's about where the similarities end. Whereas Raru's ears are sideways. Hers are straight up and down. She's very, very slim. She has, Mm. um, short cropped hair and uh, I love she is definitely uh, (laughs) she subscribes to the Darth Vader uh, version of aesthetic by having that scarf that she wears just constantly floating and waving in the air and you know (laughs) Darth Vader's always making his cape flutter in space because there's no wind in space right so yeah she subscribes to the Darth Vader version of drama and aesthetic which I appreciate yeah definitely and we are told that Minoru is Raru's older Older sister. sister I did think it was interesting so talking about the aesthetic differences between the two characters they do have some interesting similarities they both have uh, so their garb um is very similar in design but also their recurring owl motifs throughout both of their mm-hmm. kind of their both of their outfits and uh so raru's is a little bit more noticeable he's got so essentially an owl face mm-hmm. in the very middle of his like life. on his breastplate breastplate yeah, yeah which i think is super appropriate especially given um basically what we know to be true which is that in ocarina of time the owl that speaks to you uh, throughout the game is actually the an physical, avatar of Raru. Yeah, or an, an avatar, the physical manifestation of the sage of light, Raru. Right. Who was a bald <laughs> old human man in that game. <laughs> through but. lines upon through lines upon through lines. This yeah. is what we keep talking about. This series is all about echoes of things which imply other things. It's it's not so much about the um, you know, the the perfect interlinking of you know one thing to another, but more about the ripples of concepts and ideas throughout the entire series. Um, and I'm gonna have a lot more to say about that <laughs> as for we, sure as we go further into this. Yeah, I, I also liked that. So she had her little goggles on the top of of her head, which I take to be like uh, a machinist's goggles or a watchmaker's goggles, like yeah. something she would put down in order to zoom in and, and tinker on things. And then she's also on her pedestal has a more or Nate looking head mask, um, mm-hmm. which uh, comes into play later um, with the, the rest of uh, the group. So um, I thought it was really cool. They're, they're setting. <laughs> we're, we're, up, not, we're not giving a name to that group yet, are we? No, they're, they're setting up like each of these memories sets up very important things for the rest of the other memories. Yep. And a lot of them are just very, very subtle. Some of them are not subtle at all, but some of them are very subtle and they're they're very interesting. It's definitely very gratifying going back and rewatching these, knowing how the whole sequence of events. Absolutely. Ends. I'm picking up on so many new things yeah. that I didn't, you know, notice or connect before. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. 
Let's roll it on through to memory number five. This memory is titled The Gerudo Assault. This geoglyph can be found it's, in... It's the Mulduga. It is the Mulduga geoglyph, and where is it located? It is in uh, West Nocluda, kind of by... It's between South Nabi, Nabi N-A-B-I, Lake and Baltria Lake. So it's on a little island. Is uh, it kind of over by the Dueling Peaks? It's to the west of the Dueling Peaks, yes. Okay, cool. All right, memory number five, the Gerudo Assault. Man, intriguing title right there. Exactly. Hot damn. Okay, memory number five. So we open on an absolutely incredible shot of the unspeakably badass looking Ganondorf, this game's version of Ganondorf looking over the kingdom of Hyrule or the Zonai kingdom, whatever you want to call it. He's standing on a cliff uh, on the edges of the Gerudo uh, mountain range. And he's got a squad of Gerudo warriors lined up behind him. Um, He's here to declare war on the kingdom of Hyrule. And uh, man, does he look great? Uh, Seriously? Yeah, seriously looks amazing. So he's looking uh, he's looking off towards what we can pretty clearly tell to be the Great Plateau when you kind of try to pick out exactly where it is, um, kind of going back to what we were talking about a few memories ago. On the Great Plateau, Rauru, Zelda, and Sonia approach and overlook. They're watching to see what's going to happen. They're surrounded by a squad of Hyrulean guards. Um, Ganondorf declares that it is time to go to war. The Gerudo who are with him start playing flutes and a squad of Molduga comes out from the desert. This is five or six Molduga who are making a beeline straight for the Great Plateau. Zelda looks on horrified, wondering what they're going to do to save the day. Rauru is cool and collected. He places his hands together and forms a well of magic around him. Sonia places a hand behind him, adding her magic to his own, and Zelda follows suit. All three characters' magic combined allows Rauru to create an incredible blast of power, which completely destroys the oncoming wave of Molduga. Ganondorf looks on appalled that his assault has failed, conceding to himself that brute force might not be enough to defeat the Zonai and Hyrulean combined army. He looks at Rauru and notices that he wears on his wrist a secret stone of the Zonai and mutters to himself that it might be worth checking into this a little bit further. Uh, all right, Matt. <laughs> okay. Yes. Whoo! Man. God damn. Ganondorf is a snack. Uh, a whole ass. He's a meal. He's, piece. he's a meal. He's not even a snack. Man. Just <laughs> what, a, what, a, what a specimen. No, honestly, what what's so amazing is seeing a new version of the human form of this character. Because it's been a very long time, right? I mean, I think I think the last example was Wind Waker. Twilight Princess. Uh, yeah. You see, I keep thinking that Wind Waker came after Twilight Princess because Wind Waker's a better game than Twilight Princess. But <laughs> hey, we haven't reviewed it yet. We can't say that for sure. I know. I know. You're right. Okay. Yes. Twilight Princess, the last canonical appearance of human form Ganondorf. Um, and it's interesting to me 
like the way that his look has evolved over the course of all these games, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they've actually kept it fairly consistent, especially when you kind of compare him against a lot of the other characters that that kind of run through the entire series. Sure. I would say that Ganondorf from Ocarina of Time to Tears of the Kingdom actually has a very uh, cohesive sort of look and feel, right? There, yeah. there are differences. Um, and, you know, there's obvious instances of, you know, Nintendo taking advantage of having more power and more graphical ability to make this character look cooler. For sure. Um, but yeah, this is just a, just a great looking incarnation of Ganondorf. It's very cool to see Ganondorf in a capacity of being the king of the Gerudo, right? Right. Like in the past, we've heard, you know, like obviously we knew that's what he was. He talked about it a lot and we knew that was part of his backstory, but we never actually saw him interacting with the Gerudo people in that capacity. Um, and so it's very nice to see that here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I agree. I think um, another thing I really like about the way that they designed this character is Ganondorf and Ocarina of Time were heavy plate black armor and hailing from a desert species that doesn't sound like something you'd want to wear in a desert and he yeah and he's wearing similar stuff in twilight princess too. right and because it's literally the same person right but yeah what i really appreciate is they've taken what would a desert king look like and he's basically wearing like a super souped up version of the desert vo armor and it, it it fits perfectly. Yeah. And I mean, not only is he like eight feet tall and probably like 400 pounds of muscle, but like he just, he has a gravitas about his person outside of his physical presence. That is like, well, impressive. A, a lot of this is down to the performance, right? Matt sure. Mercer is, a, is incredible, is really doing some great work here. I actually have felt that the vocal performances in Tears of the Kingdom are a big step up over Breath of the Wild. Mm-hmm. I feel like, I agree. yeah, I, I feel like um, everybody involved is just a little bit more comfortable with the process now. Um, I feel like Ganondorf is even just a step above that. And yeah, Matt Mercer is an accomplished a uh, heavily credited video game actor. Right? Absolutely. Like he, this dude knows what he's doing in a voice recording, sound recording booth. Like yeah. Bart, like absolutely bar none, one of the best. So, um, huge kudos to Nintendo for, for getting Matt Mercer to be here and do this. Well, like, and for recognizing the importance of trying to secure known talent at times, right? right? For because sure. I, I do think, and that's not to cast aspersions on like, you know, Patricia Somerset or, you know, any of the other actors who, who are giving life to any of the other characters in this game. Um, but I, I do just think that the, the appearance of Ganondorf in this era of Zelda is such a big deal. You've got to get somebody just note perfect for this role. And I think that's Matt Mercer. Agreed. Um, a lot of really fun things happening in this memory. It's very fun to witness kind of a, a, an, a literal stare down between the, the Hyrulean forces and the Gerudo forces. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it's fun to watch Rauru uh, appear so calm and collected. Um, and give the impression that he knows exactly how to respond to this incredible threat, right? Yep. Like, I'm looking at this and thinking like, oh, uh, hell, <laughs> I can barely handle like one Mulduga. <laughs> Much less five simultaneously. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So, um, yeah, I, I think just a really fun cinematic situation. Absolutely. I, I think um, it's also really fun to see 
a physical representation of the conflicts that Hyrule as a kingdom has has gone through. Because like we we talk a lot about various wars that Hyrule has been through in their past and the conflicts that they've had, the the wars against the Gerudo being the most predominant. And we've never seen it. Like we've we've gotten some we've gotten some drawings, but like seeing what the conflict between the Gerudo tribes and the kingdom of Hyrule, like seeing what that looks like is really cool. Yeah. So I appreciated that. Another note to musical uh, themes is the the Gerudo woman, uh, Molduga trainer, I guess we'll call her, when yeah. she starts playing her little flute, that intro is very similar to what you get in the spirit temple in Ocarina of Time. So like they're, they're just making those direct callbacks again and it's just beautifully done. It's perfect. Um, and I, I wish that those Molduga bodies were still there right now so I could go grab a Molduga jawbone and fuse it to my sword. Like, right. <laughs> those are really cool. Who's going to pick up the Molduga jaws? I need them. I yes. know the guts are probably long gone, but the bones might still be there, please. Um, be. So I, I I really like this a lot. I think it it ratchets up the, the tension of this time period mm-hmm. because up till now, this time period has been... Uh, uh, shown to us as like peaceful and it's a, it's a founding era of Hyrule and like humans and Zonai working together and everything seems like pretty chill um, as opposed to what we're coming from, obviously right off the heels of the calamity. And now with the, the Ganondorf uh, gloom crisis, the uprising was what they're calling it. Yeah, um, yeah. And so seeing that this era is equally fraught is pretty cool also. Yeah, I will say I could have used maybe an extra memory or at least a little bit of setup uh, via dialogue in one of the earlier memories, which kind of set up the fact that Hyrule was at war. There was like a brewing conflict or some kind of like like the the specter of oncoming war with the Gerudo and with Ganondorf. I think that like this memory is really cool, but it just kind of like shows up out of the clear blue sky, you know, totally agree without much uh, context. And so, um, you know, that's fine. That's sort of the the whole the whole structure of this system is that it skips around. Right. And so it's not really a problem, but I will say, and I'm going to come back to this again one or two more times, but I do think that there is room for a little bit more information to be conveyed here than what we're actually seeing. And I'll, I'll get into that more as we talk about Ganondorf specifically later, but totally agree. All that being said though. Awesome. (laughs) I know. Yeah. See? Yeah. I'm going to make fun of you. I know that's okay. That's fine. I don't mind. Um, Awesome. Awesome memory. Really, really fun to watch. Just a uh, spectacular return of a of an incredible character. Agree on all counts. All righty. Memory number six. The title of this memory is A Show of Fealty. And this geoglyph uh, represents Ganondorf kneeling, and yep. it can be found in the Gerudo Highlands over near um, the... Uh, Typhi Hill is really is it's on it's like a little bit west of the Typhi Hill. Um, Sophia's table is where you find the actual memory. The tier itself is on uh, right below Sophia's table. Yeah, it's on the it's on the snowy upper reaches of the Gerudo Mountains on the interior side. Yep. Uh, Closer to the desert. Closer to the desert. Yep. Yep. All right. Awesome. Memory number six. Here we go. 
All right, so this memory, we get to see a scene that is exactly reminiscent of the scene we see in Ocarina of Time, which is Ganondorf coming to show fealty, quote-unquote, to the king of Hyrule. In this case, King Rauru, Queen Sonya, and Princess Zelda as an onlooker. Um, Ganondorf uh, starts this scene in a pose of kneeling, just like uh, in the geoglyph, and uh, kind of waxes philosophical a little bit about uh, his apologies for not accepting the king's repeated invitations. So apparently, uh, this has been going on for a while, that the Hyrule is wanting to make peace with uh, the Gerudo. And uh, Ganondorf is here to make good on that promise after his failed attempt to uh, storm Hyrule by force. So uh, Ganondorf then goes on to say that, uh, you know, it's regrettable that the mighty Zonai no longer grace the land with their presence. So kind of indicating that it is indeed Raru and Minoru alone that have been seen uh, by the people of the surface world uh, for a long time and, and no other Zonai. So uh, Ganondorf goes on to make some semi-veiled threats about that and uh, Raru kind of puts him in his place about uh, even if something were to happen to me and my sister, the kingdom that I have founded and the ideals of peace uh, will endure for generations. So Raru is very confident in not only his ability uh, but also in the kingdom that he has set up. Ganondorf uh, thanks him for uh, accepting the Gerudo into the kingdom and uh, takes his leave. So afterwards, uh, Zelda says to uh, Raru in confidence that she does not believe Ganondorf is uh, true in his intentions and that even the very name gives her pause. Uh, Raru indicates that he is very well aware. Raru indicates that he's well aware of Ganondorf's nature and doesn't trust him either, um, but kind of follows the adage of it's good to keep your friends close and your enemies closer mm -hmm. so uh, that's kind of Raru's uh, thing here and that he wants Ganondorf close so he can keep an eye on him and uh, we'll see how that plays out yeah okay so big Game of Thrones vibes in this cutscene right yeah definitely the music helps that as well sure and not and not least of which is the setting which is very like Red Keep adjacent you yeah know? for sure um, very similar to that but we have kind of that classic exchange of like villain and hero talking to each other um, on the surface one thing is happening right underneath the surface another thing is happening and both parties are aware of what those things are yep it's, it's you know what I'm saying. I know that you know what I'm saying, but I'm saying it anyway. And on the surface, you have nothing to be mad about. Like Ganondorf even goes too far as to make veiled aspersions about uh, Raru mating with a Hy Hyrulean woman. Um, and he says that you've risen far above your station. But we all know that he's kind of disparaging Raru's choice to dilute the Zonai bloodline with yes. Hylians. Okay, so. and so here we get back to the, the history of the Zonai, right? Because Ganondorf in this memory specifically says that long ago the Zonai descended onto Hyrule from the skies and must surely have been seen as gods. God, for sure. At that time. To the primitive Hylians. Right. And so, uh, again, I'm not expecting a 100% confirmation on what exact period of time is being talked about here. Uh, it, this could be post Skyward Sword, pre these events, right? Like the, the people of Skyloft coming to the surface and the Zonai de descend onto the world after that time. Um, 
is also possible that again, the Zonai were uh, present on the surface prior to the events of Skyward Sword. So around the time of the war with Demise, you know? Right. And I think so for a long time, for most of these memories, and I, there's still some things that I think this could indicate that this is leading up to the uh, creation of Skyloft. And I think uh, there is indication that it could very well be prior to the war with demise and we lead into that from here and you're talking um, when you say here you're talking about the the, the zonai story not correct. the events we're currently watching right 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 yeah. so the, the zonai story i think you could make a case that the events we're currently watching could also lead into that it just depends on the time frame in which all of this takes place because and and i mean, I'll, i think we can get into that to a little bit more once we finish but i i think I, I, I really And I'll tell you why I think that when we get there. Okay. That I, I have a couple and look, all of this is very circumstantial and very theory crafty and tinfoil hat. I'm a tinfoil hat on. So um I, I, I think will, it's possible, not likely. I will say I think that all of this definitely takes place post the end of Skyward Sword. But see, I think my biggest qualm with that is there is no Master Sword currently. Well, I mean, it was sealed away at the end of Skyward Sword. Right. But if there was the Master Sword, would not the Chosen Hero be sent to, like, would there not be a Chosen Hero in this time frame? I mean, in in this particular moment? Not necessarily, I don't think. Hmm. Well, maybe, maybe not. I don't know. Anyway, that's one of the things that makes me think that maybe this is leading into like the war with demise happens post uh post but, but the if, end of the memories but if the war possibly. With, but if the war with demise hasn't happened yet then that means that this version of ganondorf is not not in not imbued with demise's curse correct yeah. i think that's also possible yeah i don't know i don't know i don't know i don't know either okay but anyway <laughs> um all of that being said and i'm stealing your phrase um, this sets up a very interesting dynamic of is like, is Raru being, um, overconfident in his perceived ability to control Ganondorf from close up? Yeah. Like, is it better to keep your enemies at a distance or is it really better to keep them close so you can keep an eye on them? And that's an interesting, uh, dichotomy of rulership that i'm glad i don't have to think about yeah definitely so i I think uh it it is very nice it's reiterated very clearly here through framing of the scene that ganondorf's main objective is to acquire one of the magical apostrophes he wants one of the secret stones so yeah um i we can very clearly see that to be his end goal so and he's kind of sizing up who he thinks is the prime target to take it from like he's he sizes up all three of them in this moment he looks first at raru's then he looks at zelda then he looks at sonya and he's trying to like gauge which one is the most vulnerable yeah definitely um really cool to see ganondorf stand up turn away and like grab his gloom sword in its sheath right yeah that looks really neat Yeah. yeah it's cool okay Anything else you want to say about this one before we move on? Nope, let's do it. All righty. This is going to be memory number seven. And this one is Queen Sonia. The title is Zelda and Sonia. 
and the geoglyph can be found. Uh, on the north side of the Gerudo Highlands in the southwest section of the Hyrule Ridge. So it's kind of off near the, um, kind of off near uh, Wash's Bluff where you could yep. find Cass. It's directly and- west of Wash's Bluff. If, okay. you, if you get onto Wash's Bluff and go west onto the Illum... Illumini, Illuminati. If you go to the Illuminati <laughs> Plateau, uh, you'll find this memory. Uh, kind of, uh, Mount Satori is probably the nearest big landmark. Yeah, it's it's... A little bit north and west of Satori Mountain. Okay, cool. All right, memory number seven, Zelda and Sonia. Okay, so we have quite an interesting little interlude here. Um, This one is a a lot smaller in scope than some of the past ones. Uh, It's an interaction completely between Zelda, Sonia, and Rauru. And uh, basically, they're, it's a tea party, right? They're, uh, they're having a royal tea party. They're having a royal tea party. They, uh, they're in a, in a nice-looking gazebo in the middle of a very beautiful lake. I actually think, I could be wrong, I think this is the island in the middle of um, one of the Hyrule Field lakes. It's the, um, oh, crap, you get Majora's Mask there in Breath of the Wild from the chest. It's the... Um, uh, Colomo Lake. Lake, okay. Lake Colomo. And there's an island in the very middle of that. Could be wrong. Could be somewhere else. Um, but uh, the group is all hanging out together, having some tea. Zelda accidentally drops her teacup. Uh, and then before it can fall to the floor and shatter, Queen Sonia uses her time manipulation powers, which we recognize to be recall, right? It's mm-hmm. recall the way that it works for us when we're playing the game. The teacup returns safe and sound to its place on the table. Zelda wonders at Sonia's ability to control time in this way and says that she wishes that she had a similar power because she thinks that it would be the first step towards her own ability to return to her own time. Queen Sonia reassures Zelda that the ability to do this will come in time and kind of lets her into a little bit of the process of how she approaches um, the ability to manipulate objects through time in this way. Queen Sonia further observes that she feels that a need to return to her own time is not the only thing weighing on Zelda's mind. Additionally, she feels that Zelda is feeling guilty for abandoning Rauru and Sonia in the midst of such a time of turmoil in their own kingdom. We see this as a moment that Zelda is truly becoming attached to these two characters. Sonia reassures Zelda that it is the absolutely appropriate thing for her to do to continue focusing her efforts to returning to her own time, um, not least of which because she contains the power to dispel evil, which she says will be invaluable to solving the issues that are happening in the present day. Zelda thanks her for her understanding. Sonia then ventures another opinion, which is that Uh, She believes Zelda simply can't wait to get back to the present and be reunited with Link. Rauru says that he has never heard the name Link before, but is not surprised that Sonia knows who this person is. He observes that it's difficult to keep any information secret from Sonia. Zelda then goes on a little bit of an explanation about who who Link is as a character, their history together, and uh, the circumstances that brought them together again at the end of Breath of the Wild. She further observes that Link is a brave knight, has a good heart, um, and clearly has nothing but good things to say about him. Uh, Sonia and Rauru are picking up on what Zelda's putting down. They can tell that uh, she seems quite taken with him and say that they would both find it to be an honor to be able to link uh, to meet Link 
in person. They want to link up with Link. They want to link up with Link. Not in a sexual way. All right, Matt. Um, okay, so here, thing number one. Look, uh, we talked a lot in the Breath of the Wild season about whether or not you can categorize Breath of the Wild Link and Zelda as a romantic Link and Zelda couple. And 100% yes. 100% yes. Yep. Yeah. Um, 100% yes. This is definitely a young adult uh, woman talking to mom and dad about the guy she wants to bring home. Yeah. And um, <laughs> like talking him up and like, oh, you guys would really love him. He's really great. Um, and mom and dad being like, yeah, let's meet this guy. So um, I love the furthering of this relationship. Separated by, you know, 25,000 years, but whatever. <laughs> yeah, who's counting? Time is only a construct. So it's... Um, it's notably not a Zonai construct. <laughs> notably not. So it's really fun to see the furthering of the relationship that exists here and, in, and putting it into a much more personal context. Like this memory really serves more than just telling us about about how recall works it's about um character construction character building uh for raru and sonya and their relationship with zelda well what's really nice about this is that all three of these characters actually have a really good uh repartee between each other for sure you know there's uh there's really good interaction they have chemistry i understand why they all care about each other and I think that that's that's actually really impressive, especially when you take into account the amount of time that we've had to get acquainted with that dynamic, which hasn't has not been very much. Right. And it's also interesting that they're able to make you kind of care about these characters by doing that. Like we obviously care about Zelda because we've known Zelda for two games now. And it's it's really rewarding to see these two characters openly caring about Zelda as more than just a princess, as more than just a conduit of uh, sacred power, which is really the only inkling of what we got Rome's relationship with Zelda to be outside of his diary and his regrets was he saw and treated Zelda like a conduit of power. And that's all that she was. And to see these two characters caring for her in a very parental way that cares about her as a person and it's 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 really great and it's a huge uh win for uh getting emotional investment into two characters that we have had you know candidly less than 10 minutes of screen time with and like you do start to care about them in that way and i think it's it's genius storytelling yep i i absolutely agree um i think that at this point if any Link and Zelda pairing is going to touch what Skyward Sword and Zelda, uh, Skyward, Skyward Sword, Sword Link, Link and, and Zelda, Zelda did. had together, it's then, these two. then it's these two, right? Yeah. Um, we're doing some real work on this, and it's a little unfair to compare the two because there's a little bit more ability for this game to tell that story. Mm-hmm. Um, Not voice acting alone. Right, sure. Helps a lot. Yeah, definitely. There's so much definitely. ethos and pathos that yeah. come from hearing a voice and seeing the facial expressions. Yeah, definitely. But, I, you know, I think I'm still not quite to the point where I'm ready to say like, oh, yeah, this is the Lincoln Zelda pairing to beat, you know? Right. Uh, but the early signs are there. It's For sure. Lo- it's looking promising. And also, so. they have had two games to build that. That That's also, also true. Yeah, also very true. Um, we've got a lot of a lot of foundational ground uh, that was presented to us in Breath of the Wild, right? Like we've already gotten past uh, the the point where it's like we we saw the realistic journey of Zelda not 
being impressed with Link being assigned to her for her protection, right? right? Like she in Breath of the Wild, she in the memory the antagonism, she, exactly. Yeah, uh, she she really wasn't feeling it much at all. But you know, um, we we have history with these two characters, and so that you're right, that does help, and that is something that Skyward Sword was not able to really lean on. Sure. So so and and I I love it. I think this is a great character building memory. Yep. Outside Absolutely. of that, I don't. I think we should just move on to the next one. Cool, sounds good. That brings us to memory number eight. The title of this memory is "Sonia is caught by treachery," and uh, so this geoglyph is in the shape of a knife, and it can be found in the Faron region in a little spiral outcrop of land that points off towards Eventide Island, and it's over by it's southeast of Loreline Village. That would be Lorellin Village. I like Loreline. I don't know why, but I know it's wrong. Well, that's going in the channel. (laughs) (laughs) All right. All right, here we go. Memory number eight, Sonia is caught by treachery. Whew, all right, so a short memory, but man, an impactful one. So in, this, in the intro to this uh, memory, we see Sonya walking out on a balcony at night, obviously on the royal palace, and uh, a Zelda uh, walking behind her. And Sonya turns uh, kind of in profile and says, all right, Zelda, what is it you wanted to talk to me about in private? And Zelda gives out an uncharacteristic chuckle that is filled with menace and says, you are far too trusting. That's an evil chuckle. It was a very evil chuckle. And then... Then uh, flings. You're far too trusting. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Grand Moff Tarkin. We'll deal with your <laughs> rebel friends, friends soon, soon enough. enough. And then blows up the planet anyway. <laughs> right. <laughs> so anyway, um, then Zelda. Hey, Matt, were you aware that Dantooine is far too remote to make an effective demonstration? I am. Are you? Or how long are we going to continue the Star Wars thing? Because I'm going to lose my train of thought. No, I'm done now. Okay, cool. Um, so Zelda flings a Gerudo dagger. Uh, she like sidearms this thing, which is <laughs> a choice for sure. Um, and it's making an arc right towards the back of Sonya's head. Is this like the Zelda equivalent of like two Glocks pointed like perpendicular? Yeah, to the it makes body, absolutely right? no like, sense. That's yeah. not the proper form <laughs> at all of throwing a knife. It just doesn't work. Um, <laughs> but good for you, I guess. Yes. Um, apparently it works for this assassin. So it looks th- great in music videos. It does. It's totally not effective. Um, but before the dagger can impact into Sonya's back, uh, it is stopped by recall and uh, sent back towards Zelda. And uh, in this moment, Sonya uh, kind of mocks the quote unquote Zelda. And says, uh, oh my, this doesn't sound like anything like the Zelda I know. And we see the real Zelda uh, come out of the shadows and call out this apparition for what it is as a puppet of Ganondorf. Um, as Sonya and Zelda stare down the, appar- the uh, puppet of Ganondorf, it disappears in a uh, burst of gloom energy and just kind of dematerializes into nothingness. Uh, both Sonya and Zelda are kind of staring at the place where it was until Sonya is stabbed in the back by Ganondorf himself, who has appeared from thin air, um, kind of up for debate on whether Ganondorf was actually impersonating Zelda himself and like teleported or Ganondorf was just like cloaked somewhere unknown. But either way, Ganondorf assassinates Sonya uh, by stabbing her in the back and steals her steals her uh, secret stone and uh, does his crazy maniacal laughter with the amazing uh, Ganondorf uh 
organ theme from Ocarina of Time playing in the background. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so a few things here. One, so my read on the whole shade of Zelda Ganondorf's puppet situation is that he was projecting this uh, and it, it was not physically Ganondorf disguised as Zelda. Um, this leads, I agree. This leads to a few questions. Uh, but off the top, I just want to say it's really cool because we've seen we've seen Zelda as a puppet of Ganondorf at other times in the mm, series. Twilight Princess. Right. So that's kind of cool right off the bat. But um, I am a little curious about how this works because Ganondorf has yet to acquire the secret stone. Right. Right. And so. We have not been led to believe up until this point that Ganondorf possesses supernatural abilities separate from that. However, uh, we do know that the Secret Stone amplifies abilities that already exist, and the canon of the of the Ganondorf character is that he was raised in a lifestyle of sorcery by Twin Rova, right? Who a dark sorcerer? Yeah, sure. Who we don't see anywhere here, but sure. Let's just say the same thing. Is, yeah, is that's, that's that's canon for Ganondorf throughout most of Zelda. Like that, Twin Rova raised him to be a dark sorcerer, and um, they were even responsible for his reincarnation on multiple occasions. So, um, I'm I'm totally cool with the head canon, and this this does seem like a uh, a puppet of you know kind of one off proportion in some ways. So like maybe this is just what he's able to do prior to acquiring the sacred stone, secret stone, and then you know. Past that is where he becomes super powered and he goes super saiyan dark and whatever. So, um, obviously very bad news that he got his hands on a secret stone. Um, all arguably worse news that, uh, Queen Sonya is now, uh, dead and, uh, lies. Well, that, that's left a little up in the air here. I mean, is it? Yeah. Not really. Yeah. Um, and so Zelda is rushing over to Queen Sonya and, um, is more concerned about Sonya than about the stone. And I think that's where we take our cue that the fate of Sonya is even more tragic than the fate of the stone. So um, yeah, at least sure. that's where I'm taking that cue from. I, I agree. I agree. I don't have too much more to add about this. It's a cool little yep. scene, but in my mind, this scene and the one that follows it are, are the most important, are the same. Like it's, yeah. it's all one thing together. There's no time jump between the two. Right. So, and I, I'm kind of confused why they didn't just combine these two, because this is a very short one, like compared to the rest, like this, I think is the shortest one. So I'm a little unclear on why they didn't just combine these two, but, um, you know, storytelling and, going to get more things absolutely what do you say we just move on into the next one because that's where the meat of this whole thing happens roll it this is memory number nine the title is the birth of the demon king and which, it is all the way in the far north in the north tabantha snowfields and what is the uh, what's the image it is like crazy hair ganondorf demon ghosty thing all right yeah well cool yeah all right let's roll on the memory All right. This memory picks up immediately where the last one left off. Queen Sonia is lying on the ground. Zelda has crawled to her body, trying to check and see if she's all right. Ganondorf is holding the secret stone that he stole from Queen Sonia. He holds it in his hand, and before his eyes, it grows in size and starts to shine with a dark power. Um, it raises itself up into the sky and then attaches to the center of Ganondorf's forehead. He can feel his power surging. The secret stone is clearly resonating within him, and it is amplifying his power in much the same way that it does for other characters. 
In this case, that gives rise to a wave, a cyclone of evil, dark energy that consumes Ganondorf as he transforms into a monstrous creature, uh, even more sinister looking than he did previously. A blood moon rises and monsters are manifested into the world. We see Lizalfos, Hinox, Bacoblins, Lynels, Redeads, uh, all manner of uh, evil creatures, an army that Ganondorf has now summoned into the world using the power of the Secret Stone. While all of this is happening, Rauru runs into the scene. He sees Sonia lying on the floor, runs forward to try and see if he can do anything to help her. Ganondorf turns to face Rauru, says that he's too late. He says that he has squandered the godlike power of the secret stones that he has had in his possession. His inaction will now cost him everything, with Queen Sonia being the first casualty. Rauru wants to rush forward and engage Ganondorf in combat, but a word from Zelda causes him to turn around and reminds him that Sonia still needs his help. Ganondorf raises his hand and emits a blast of evil energy straight at Rauru and Zelda. However, Rauru is able to deflect it with his own light power uh, by virtue of his own secret stone. While this shield is up, Zelda is able to grab her Pira pad and is able to use its capabilities to teleport Sonia, Rauru, and herself away from the scene. Ganondorf being momentarily thwarted, uh, looks back upon the blood moon and plots his next steps. All right. So uh, thing number one, awesome that Minoru was able to get the Puripad working. I mean, super clutch for this specific moment here, right? Because without that, uh, mm-hmm. everyone's hosed. Yep, absolutely. So um, and like it's interesting to me that the Puripad can work without uh, a point to go to because like the only way we can fast travel is by going to pre-arranged coordinates at you know other areas i'm wondering if uh i'm wondering if minaru made a travel gate somewhere uh that probably makes the most sense um all things considered so that probably good headcanon um so uh, my first impressions here were when i very first watched this i was like wait are we seeing the birth of demise like is Ganondorf becoming Demise by virtue of claiming the stone? And because, I mean, he gets the crazy long blood red flowing hair that's like glowy and luminescent. He gets horns and his whole visage becomes very Demise-like. He's got the glowing red eyes, the black skin, like like black stone. And uh, even his voice is like, obviously we don't have a voice for Demise, but it's very much what I would anticipate Demise to sound like if he were to be voice acted. Um, so, and he creates a blood moon and he summons and, you know, I think what we're meant to take from this is Gandorf created these monsters. He created the Redeads, he created the Book Oblins, he created the Lizalfos through the through the power of the blood moon uh, via the stone. So like my thought when I watched this was this is the creation of demise and the start of the war that um, led to the creation of Skyloft. Um, Not sure if the rest of the memories play out to that theory, but um, you know, that's where my head immediately went. I don't know. What did you, what did you think, Lyndon? I I still really think you're kind of off base here in terms of your, 
your placement of things in the timeline. I think that what's happening here is that the secret stone is, as we've heard before, amplifying the power that exists within people, Mm -hmm. right? For Ganondorf, what that's doing is amplifying his connection to the curse that Demise cast, right? Uh, Because he's not a a one-for-one of that character. Like, there are some big similarities, right? But I, I do simply think that this is Ganondorf, um, with the secret stone having amplified his own form to be more close to that of demise via the link that they share. I mean, obviously it's very similar, right? Um, yeah. Ganondorf is certainly evoking the character of demise here. And I think that that's very effective and very powerful. The character design here is absolutely wild. I mean, he's basically covered in gloom energy. Um, his hair is now floor length and his fire red. It's really, um, it's just, it's an incredible scene. Uh, and it, it definitely very menacing, right? I mean, mm-hmm. you, you definitely feel very threatened by what Ganondorf has managed to accomplish here. Um, and the action is great as well. I mean, I love this moment where he he tries to take out our whole crew with his evil magic and Rauru comes in clutch with his light barrier, you know? Yeah, and I think it's important to note that even with um, the light barrier, uh, it like Ganondorf is close to breaking it before Zelda, yeah. you know, ferries them away. So we're getting uh, an immediate uh, feeling that Ganondorf's power is probably more than Raru's in this moment. And that's very scary. Yeah, I I agree. I also think it's really interesting because this very much implies that this whole roster of classic Zelda enemies are created by Ganondorf in this moment. Yeah. You know? Um, So that's that's really fun. Uh, Yeah, just really... Uh, this is kind of the Empire Strikes Back moment for all of our characters, right? Like this mm-hmm. is where every this is where everybody loses, and it seems like nothing is going to go our way. Um, y'all about to die. Y'all about to die. It's a it's a really great scene, just really well told. Absolutely agree. Yeah, um, I'm looking at a picture of Demise right now, and obvious. So Demise actually does not have horns. I thought he did. No, he doesn't. I think that'd be a cool ad, though. Yeah, me too. I definitely think Ganondorf himself looks really interesting with these little horns. I think um, I'm sort of surprised that they didn't go for more of like a tusk situation. Yeah, which kind of ties yeah, into the, the, boar. the Ganon yeah, thing. Of, that's true. I mean, this is much more of like a hello, Thetan kind of. Yeah, sort of, sort of thing for but, sure. Regardless. Great character design. Um, yeah, it's yeah. a really fun I, one. I think it's great. And seeing the rise of the blood moon for the first time. Um, and man, it is huge. It is massive. It fills up the entire sky. Yeah. Um, and then just the whole kingdom suffused with that gloom energy. Um, really, really scary stuff. So excellent, excellent memory. All right. Let's bounce on to memory number 10. The title of which is The Sage's Vow. And uh, this geoglyph can be found. Hold on. I was looking at the wrong one. I thought this was King's Duty. Sage's Vow. This is uh, number 10. And this is over uh, in the Lanayru Sea area, kind of east of Zora's Domain, east of... uh, Jabu Ridge. Um, it's on Talus Plateau. So if you head over to the very eastern portion of the map, uh, kind of middle of the eastern portion of the map, it's and it's shaped like a secret stone. 
Yeah. yeah. Which bears a striking resemblance to the Kokiri Emerald, by the way. Also an apostrophe. Indeed. <laughs> All right. Uh, memory number 10. All right, another really good one. Um, So we see in this scene, Raru surrounded by um, a group of folks wearing Zonai helmets. And there's one from each race. There is obviously Raru. um, His sister Minoru is there as well. Um, Then we have a Zora, a Rito, a Goron, and a Gerudo, all currently unnamed, uh, bearing the Zonai helmets uh, and Zelda as well. Um, they're standing there talking and uh, Minoru reports that the last free Gerudo village has fallen to the Demon King's army. So it seems that Ganondorf has started his campaign against the free world in his own home uh, of Gerudo and has effectively uh, taken it over completely. Uh, they further say that at this rate, there is no way that they can stop the Demon King conventionally, that his armies will overwhelm them uh, imminently. Uh, then Raru says that it is up to him to stop the Demon King uh, in combat, basically. Minoru says that uh, it is impossible for Raru to defeat the Demon King by himself. So Raru uh, takes this advice to heart and opens a vault of secret stones uh, to give to each one of these leaders. Um, And each of them, after receiving a secret stone, um, we see a really cool scene where the stones kind of attach themselves to each of these uh, sages as they become known at the end of this memory uh, in a unique place and give them a new piece of armor or uh in the rito's case is like dangles from his uh from his foot so it it attaches to each of them and uh does the thing where it changes color and etches itself with a symbol uh regarding the race that it has uh come to be attached to um at the end of this they stand in a circle very reminiscent of the sage the sages in ocarina of time and swear allegiance to raru the king of light There we go. I mean, so several really cool things to point out here. One, so we now know what is behind the door in the Forgotten Temple, right? It's much more than just the housing place of a giant goddess statue. Uh, It is also home to what is essentially the Chamber of Sages, which we have just now seen the era of the wilds equivalent to right right i mean it's not so much contained within like an astral plane the yeah way it's, that it it's is. not in the sacred realm or anything it, yeah it's not but uh, but i i do think that we can safely call this the chamber of the sages uh very fun to see that it's very evocative imagery for people who have been playing the zelda series for a long time um there are seven of them which is again very significant um yeah, I mean, just such, such such a cool moment to see, really. I, I do wish that we had names for the sages that belong to each of the other races, mm-hmm. right? Which I, we, we do get them, so I know we have the name of the Rito sage. I don't know what it is off the top of my head. They didn't name him. It, he's I thought just, they did. He's just called the, sage, the wind sage. Oh, okay. Well, that's too bad. Yeah. What is kind of cool about the sages of all those uh, various races of Hyrule is that the helmets that they wear are evocative of the divine beasts. Yep. Right. So, uh, you know, the Goron one looks like Va Rudania. The Zora one looks like Va um, Ruta. Va Ruta. Uh, the Gerudo one looks like Va Naboris, et cetera, et cetera. So it's it's a really cool through line, a really cool aesthetic through line from Breath of the Wild uh, into here. 
Um, I'm not sure what it means exactly, but again, we know that the era of the Sheikah took place somewhere between what we're seeing now and uh, Breath of the Wild. Yep. Like the divine beasts were created long after this, uh, but I think it's fair to say that the the history of these cultures um, has kind of influences the design yeah, there. influenced the design of those. So sure. Very fun moment. Yeah, I I really liked um, I really liked seeing each of the stones take on a different color and etching based on the power that they would have given each of the sages and um, the the helmets like you talked about was was a really neat touch. Um, the the oath they all take somehow simultaneously without prepping for it was uh, very cinematic. But kind of uh, my first thought, maybe just maybe I've watched too many movies, was like they didn't even practice that like. Okay, cool. But anyway, it was it was a cool emotional moment that um, it's kinda, like Rocket and Guardians of the Galaxy. It's like, and now we're all standing. <laughs> exactly. That's exactly Just how a I bunch felt of about dorks it. standing in a circle. <laughs> yep. Yeah. So uh, it was it was really cool though, and I and I love that we get the origin of the sages here. Um, which, you know, we have, you and I have completed the Rito, uh, phenomenon where we unlock the power of the wind sage. So, you know, assuming that we're going to get to mm. see each of these other sages, or at least the Zora, the Gerudo and the, uh, Goron ones when we do those phenomenons. So, um, very much looking forward to that for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I definitely think that, hold on, I had a thought. I think it's really fun to hear some talk about the way that this conflict is going in the wider world of Hyrule, of Hyrule. And it's also very nice to hear that the entirety of the Gerudo culture was not behind Ganondorf, right? Which I think we could have inferred simply by virtue of the fact that there is a Gerudo sage present at these proceedings, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but we definitely get some explicit confirmation that not all of the Gerudo are behind him. So that was definitely very fun. I, I wish we were seeing just a little bit more of this conflict. However, there is one memory that is that I've still got as question marks, which is placed chronologically between the last one and this one. And it's obviously not going to be a part of the Tears of the Dragon quest. But like there are other memories scattered throughout the adventure log, right? Mm-hmm. That I'm sure you yeah, like you gain access to them by doing other things and other quests later in the game. Um, so maybe that speaks to this just a little bit more. Uh, but uh, yeah, I, I do wish we were seeing just a bit more of the war. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Well, while I love this and I love how cool it is, uh, I'm always a sucker for more context and more uh, details sprinkled in. Yeah. Okay. I I don't think we have much more to say about that unless you've got anything else to add. Not really. I just think that it's very fun to be seeing a functional use for the Forgotten Temple. Uh, Yes, I love that. And, you know, obviously the map room to where each of these memories is located uh, is in the Forgotten Temple behind the goddess statue. But seeing the antechamber to the map room has this little uh, flower looking thing and that's where they get their secret stones from. So seeing it in use for this kind of uh, ceremony basically was really cool. Yep, completely agree. All right, let's move on to memory number 11, the title of which is A King's duty and this can be found uh in on the shores of lake hylia closer to the Farren grasslands so it's kind of the south uh west yeah southwest um shore of lake hylia and it's shaped like a tombstone and here we go 
All right. The immediate follow up to the last memory is a scene of Raru standing over a tombstone. We now get confirmation that, yes, Queen Sonia is dead and she is buried in the Forgotten Temple within the chamber of the sages. Raru is paying respects at her tombstone when Zelda walks up. Zelda wants to let Raru know um, a little bit of extra information that she hadn't previously disclosed. Uh, she believes now that the mummy that they discovered at the beginning of the game is in fact the corpse or the reanimated corpse of Ganondorf. Uh, because of this, she now has confirmation that Ganondorf survives all the way until present day. And she believes that it's a mistake for Raru to face him, given that it will be impossible for them to destroy Ganondorf. Raru says that it is his duty as king to do so, and he does still remain as the king of Hyrule. He says that even should they fail, their last line of defense can be Link and the Master Sword together in the future. Zelda is dismayed at this turn of events and is filled with nothing but foreboding for the coming day and the dangers that it might bring. However, Rauru reminds her that her very existence in this period in time is a divergence from the way that things were supposed to go, and so it's possible for anything to happen. He believes firmly that she has a role to play in this time, and as they go forward into their confrontation with the Demon King, Zelda is filled with a tiny amount of hope that, yes, she does have a part to play here in this time. So... R.I.P. Queen Sonia. Yep, absolutely. R.I.P. to a real one. I Okay, so this is what I'm kind of confused about. Talking about timeline shenanigans again. The fact that Raru mentions specifically that Zelda has come to this time and caused some sort of disruption in the flow of time. You know, he, he says very specifically, you came here and previously, you know, that was not the case. To me, that really speaks clearly to the fact that a branching of some sort has taken place here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I, I think you're right. Um, time hijinks never uh, leave things clean. It, it always makes everything messy. So um, Zelda's interference or um, mere presence, and especially her breaking the temporal prime directive by telling Raru <laughs> right. uh, what's about to happen, uh, definitely has implications, right? And what those implications are is really hard to nail down where, with what the information that we have. And I, I think it's, it's an interesting point of consternation to introduce further Ocarina of Time style um, messiness to the Zelda timeline. Yeah. And, um, you know, the more that we've talked about it and the more that, and, and you and I talked about this a lot before, um, before coming in to record this episode, it almost feels like they're setting up the, the wild games to be their own thing. And this kind of feels like a solidification of that in some ways in that, What's happening now in the memories has drastically changed our present during the game and maybe is why the Sky Islands are floating now and they weren't in Breath of the Wild and like the timeline has gotten jacked up. And so now we're doing something different and new in the same 
context, yeah, larger I, context. I, I, yeah, I mean, at the very end of this, I want to talk about some takeaways that we have from this entire thing. But for right now, I definitely do think it's very telling that they would choose to include, like from a narrative standpoint, that they would choose to include this little bit of dialogue here, right? Mm-hmm. I feel like that's very purposeful. Um, yep. And I feel like in a lot of ways, like you don't, if you're a narrative designer, you don't put this in here. Uh, without a reason, you know, for sure. And so I do think that this is directly addressing the fact that the concept of a timeline and a continuity has been a thing that's been a going concern in the Zelda series for the last decade or so, ever since Hyrule Historia came out. Right. Yep. What it all amounts to, I have absolutely no idea. I do think that there is just something that's generally really fun about this conversation, though, um, because you've got one character talking to another about the futility of what they're about to do. Right. And Rauru is basically coming back to this uh, this hallmark of all great fictional and real world leaders. Right. Which is just that even if I don't have assurance of victory, I have a duty to try like we have to try and do this, because if not, then like what? Why? Why are we even here? Why are we even assigned these roles? Mm-hmm. You know, um, even if it's dangerous and even if what you say is true and we're not going to 100% succeed, it's our duty to give it a go. And at the absolute least, we can rely on this link you've been telling me so much about to be our last line of defense. Um, I think that's a really cool story beat. And I do think it's it's very interesting because if you're Zelda, you're you're putting a lot of faith in Link at this point because she doesn't know anything that's happened to him after she fell into the depths, right? Right. At the beginning of the game. So like, does she even know if Link is alive? I mean, not. No, uh, no, because she disappeared before Rauru's hand saved Link from falling as well. Right. So we're all putting a lot of faith right now in the hope that Link survived what happened at the beginning of the game. And obviously we know that he did, but Zelda doesn't. So I, I think that that's that's an interesting point. Um, but. You know, mostly I just think that you're you're dealing with some characters who are backed against a wall, right? And they're doing the only thing that they really can do. And I, I think that that's powerful. That's good storytelling. Yeah, I, I agree. And I love I love Raru's the way the the seriousness with which he takes his duty and the lengths with which he takes uh, his duty as king, going all the way up to. If I die protecting my kingdom, that's what I am supposed to do as its king. And like, that's what I'm here for. And if I'm not willing to do that, then I'm no good for anybody. And that's that's powerful and it's huge. And I think it speaks volumes to his character. Um, I also think it speaks volumes to Zelda's character that she agrees to help even knowing the outcome and knowing the likelihood of what the outcome is. And her faith in Raru and her faith in the sages that are around her um, and her faith in her own duty as a monarch. And she's not the monarch of this Hyrule, but she is still the monarch of Hyrule and yeah. it, and she has that same duty and she feels that same duty. And it's what drove her to do what she did in breath of the wild, which is seal herself in with calamity Ganon to hold it at bay for a hundred years. Well, and she has at this point taken on the role of the sage of time, right? right. I mean, she has taken on Sonia's role as a sage in this current time period. So, uh, you know, whether we wanted it or not, 
<laughs> nice. We've stepped into a war with the cabal on Mars. Um, whether Zelda wanted it or not, or whether Sonya wanted it or not, Zelda is now playing an integral part in the events of the present, right? Yep. It's no more like the, the primary concern for Zelda is no longer, I just have to get back home, right? It's yep. now it's go time. We have to try and do something about this, this Ganondorf guy. Yep. Um, so I think that that's awesome. It's nice because, you know, in past iterations of, of Zelda games, we have heard a lot of talk about Zelda as the head of the sages, right? Yep. Um, as some, as a character who's related to them, but is not necessarily a sage herself, but here it's kind of explicitly confirmed. Like, yes, Zelda took her place amongst the sages in this timeline. Yeah. And she's not the leader. She's sworn allegiance to Raru. She has set aside her role as both monarch and sage or and leader of the sages to swear allegiance to Raru. And that is also something that not a lot of people in Zelda's position, being that of a ruler, could do. And I think that's a really... Um, indicative of her character yeah so here's what i want to do for the next two memories or for the next few memories matt so we've got memories i believe 12 and 13 right yep uh and then we have a final one i say that we run 12 and 13 together and then cover the final one in addition to the cutscene that happens when you uh finish this whole thing out yes okay sounds good so we're gonna start with memory number 12 which is titled A Master Sword in Time. And this one can be found on the slopes of Elden Volcano uh, on the western side, and the geoglyph is shaped like the Master Sword. It's actually, it's off, it's between the uh, Korok Forest and Typhlo Ruins, kind of on that slope of Death Mountain. And you did that one right off your own memory. Yes, I did. I played off the old noggin. I have been playing way too many hours in this world (laughs) (laughs) between two games. So, all right, here we go. A master sword in time. And Matt, uh, as is tradition, you get the The the, chunkiest, the chunkiest rock block little plot recap. So I love it. It's what I live for. Here we go. Memories 12 and 13. This is a master sword in time and tears of the dragon. And sorry, since we're playing the back to back tears of the dragon is the memory that pops up once you've collected all the other ones and uh in the middle of the little spiral uh the, the there's a little spiral outcrop of land in the Akala region it's called the Reest Peninsula yeah it's it's off by uh, it you know if you go past it's northeast of Terrytown yeah if you go past the Akala stable out into the Akala sea it's over there you memories 12 and 13 here we go all right, Matt, have a go at that. Wow. So these two memories are kind of the culmination of everything that we've been uh, searching for throughout the quest. And uh, the first one begins with Zelda at the Temple of Time after the climactic battle with Ganondorf. And uh, she kind of monologues us through a short version of what happened. Um, they were unsuccessful in defeating Ganondorf, but were somehow able, through Raru's sacrifice, to seal him away and temporarily stop him. She has some flashbacks to the battle, including Raru placing his hand that contains the secret stone on Ganondorf's chest and it glowing with a ghostly power. We know that this is the hand that was holding him there uh, when we discovered the mummified Ganondorf and also the hand that saved us from falling and the hand that we now bear uh, is Raru's. She continues on with uh, just kind of 
bemoaning and despairing, uh, bemoaning is the wrong word, despairing about what to do next. And as she's doing so, her secret stone kind of flashes and she gets an intuition that something is happening. She turns around behind her and the stone anvil that sits at the center of the uh, pedestal in the Temple of Time, uh, there's an orb glowing from it. And she approaches the orb and as she does, she starts hearing the sound of the Master Sword. She starts hearing Fee's voice coming through it. She reaches out and the Master Sword comes through the this glowing orb of light and into her hands. And she marvels at the fact that the master sword has come back in time and through her special connection with fee is able to hear the spirit of the sword, tell her that link is safe. Link is all right. And that it has come back in time, 25,000 years or more to regain its power. And that Zelda's task. The reason that Zelda is here is to protect and safeguard the sword. She then flashes back to some other conversations uh, that she's had that we've seen throughout the memories uh, regarding the nature of her power. That is not only a power over time, but it is also Raru's sacred light power. And she flashes back also to the conversation with Minoru about draconification. She then sets a steely gaze on the horizon and resolves that she knows what she needs to do. Our next memory picks up exactly after this, where she's holding the Pura pad and she whispers to it and says, Minoru, I'm relying on you. And we see a small drop of purplish light, which I personally take to mean Minoru's spirit, enter the Pura pad. And she gives the Pura pad to a Zonai construct. The Zonai construct goes off to safeguard it until it gives it to us uh, an undetermined amount of time later um, at the entrance to the Temple of Time. At this point, the Master Sword in its destroyed, decayed state is laying on the stone anvil. Zelda approaches it and says again that she knows what it is that she needs to do, and she takes the secret stone and swallows it whole, beginning the process of draconification. She staggers back at the power that has entered her body and in a flash of light is thrown forward again as the draconification process begins. She grabs the hilt of the Master Sword and clutches it firmly to her chest before screaming our name and says, Link, protect them all. We see her eyes go purple and enlarge and a huge ball of light power engulfs the entirety of the Temple of Time. And as the sky darkens, a dragon bursts out of this beam of light and flies into the sky. The light dragon has been born, and Zelda is that light dragon. And as she takes to the skies, tears form within the dragon's eyes and spread across the land, creating the memories that we have been gathering for so long. Wow. Okay, so just want to say... As soon as, uh, you know, as soon as we were back in that memory in Mineru's, uh, in Mineru's library, talking about the process of draconification, uh, at that point, it immediately became a game of Chekhov's magic apostrophe, right? <laughs> right. Who's like, going to be the dragon? Who's going to be the dragon? Who's going to yeah. do it? Uh, and I think smart bets were always on Zelda, right? But it could have been Zelda, Mineru, Sonia at that time, you know, uh, could have gone anyway with that whole thing. But I think emotionally speaking it's most effective if it's zelda um especially given what you know going way back to our first conversation with the deku tree talking about 
the Master Sword's ability to absorb sacred power. And then everybody talking about how Zelda has the sacred power of not only uh, light, but also time within her. I think that that's just what makes the most sense. This is a really powerful scene and also also a very sad one, right? Yeah, it's really, really sad. Because we see Zelda making a very big sacrifice here. Um, And it's... I mean, this more than anything else incentivizes me to want to go save Zelda, right? Like (laughs) throughout the entirety of this series, that's what we've been doing. And sometimes it feels uh, emotionally imperative and other times it just feels like a video gamey thing to go and do, right? Zelda the MacGuffin. Right. And right now it feels like, I mean, Zelda is taking agency in this story. She's making decisions that have a tangible impact on the plot line. Um, I mean, Breath of the and Wild. And a huge negative impact on herself. Sure, yeah. I mean, Breath of the Wild Zelda uh, was already a very well-drawn character, right? And she kind of ascends to even uh, greater heights now, both literally and uh, figuratively. Um, no, because oh, she flies now. Yeah, because she uh, flies yeah, okay. now, yeah. Uh-huh. No, I thought that this was just, this was such a great cutscene, And especially if you've already found the light dragon kind of traversing the world before seeing this cutscene, it's even more impactful, right? Because right. now you can put a name to a face if you want to call it that. Like, you know, oh, that was Zelda the whole time. Yeah. I, you know, there are so many things about this scene that literally choked me up as I was watching them. The, the first one being um, in the first memory we talked about when, when Zelda gets the sword and the sword is speaking to her, you hear Fee's theme very slowly playing in the background and like the the Fee's farewell is one of the most emotional moments in any Zelda game that I've played like it's it's top five I wouldn't say it's the it's not number one but it's top five Mm -hmm. and hearing Fee's theme behind what you know to be Fee communicating to Zelda about Link and you know Fee's and Link's relationship is so special and intertwined because Fee only response to link but yeah. now also has included zelda like it's it's like they've taken zelda into their family right it's, it's, well fee always responded to the goddess right right and and zelda being the reincarnation thereof but it, it feels more intimate in some ways than just like a servant responding to a master it's a spectacular callback to skyward sword uh, especially paired with you know the skyward sword sound effects of when the master sword itself actually yeah. kind of glows chirping yeah. right yeah um and it's a great build on top of the moments that we had between zelda and the master sword in Breath of the Wild. Right. You know? Because it did the it did the same thing in Breath of the Wild where Link had to send or Zelda had to send Link's body to the Shrine of Resurrection and carried the Master Sword herself back to the Deku tree. Yeah. Now she's doing the same thing. Link has been sent, not by her, to somewhere else to recuperate, and now she is in charge of the Master Sword. But instead of giving it to someone else, she is taking ownership of the master sword and empowering it with her sacred light powers. Yeah. And it's, it's just, it's huge and it's, it's very emotional, emotionally affecting. And, um, it's crazy that Nintendo has made us feel this way about a sword. Like, right. But, but they have. And like, it, because the sword is not just a sword. It, it also contains a character yeah. and a character that we have grown to love over the last three games. And I, I do think it is a really, I mean, for as much as Skyward Sword is kind of popularly remembered as a lesser entry in the Zelda series, its image is being rehabilitated, right? Sure. In recent years. Uh, but I do think 
it it's great because it was such a lore heavy game and right. it established world building. It established foundational world building for so much of what's happening now. Um, and so for as often as the Zelda series doesn't like to make direct connections to other games and past things, I think that these are appropriate to do. Absolutely. And and these are not echoes. This is a straight fee is talking to Zelda. Yeah, exactly. Like it, and it's and like fee's not coming out of the sword, but you know, yeah. how, if you had played Skyward Sword, yep. that this is what's happening. Yeah. It's, it's very explicit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I love that. And um, I, I, I want to talk for a second about the whole Minoru thing. Yeah, please. I'm assuming that this is something that might get expounded on as we actually play through more of the game. Sure. But did we get the same read on this scene, which is that Minoru's spirit is actually existing in the Puripad? Yes, that that's what I took it to mean. And I don't know what that means for the Puripad exactly, because it doesn't seem to have changed its functionality. Right. And let and I, I was about to say, unless it's that's why we can do all the Zonai things, but those come from the arm, not the pad. Right. So, yeah, I'm not exactly sure what that means for us outside of maybe. So, you know, we know we're going to unlock the sages of uh, wind, fire, water and thunder, thunder. And then that we need a sage of light. We need a sage of time and we need a sage of spirit. So Minoru, if her spirit is in the Puripad, could re-manifest herself to be the Sage of Spirit. So now all we're left with is light and time. You know, hopefully, man, I really hope that we somehow get to save Zelda from being a dragon. So that's how we get her back. And then she fulfills the both uh, light and time Sage. And then we're there to fill the seventh spot as the hero. So like, that's kind of, that's what I'm, Theory crafting as I literally as I'm talking. You know what I love about this so much? What? I haven't been even slightly spoiled on the end of this game. Neither have I. Not even a little bit. Yep. I, I don't know. And like I'm spin spin foil hat, as we say in Destiny. Yeah. Spin foil hat theory crafting here. Yep. And man, I hope I'm right because I, I don't want Zelda to be a dragon for the rest of eternity. No, um, definitely not. God, I don't want her to be a dragon for the rest of eternity. Um the the Seeing her become the dragon, seeing the physical pain that that causes her, and then the emotional pain that it causes her to just think about doing it while she's doing it. And then even when she's a dragon, after she's lost her sense of self, her sense of identity, the tears that flow from her are obviously emotional distress. Yeah. And like knowing that that through line of her character, like, man, I... I don't even care about Ganondorf in the moment that I watched this memory. All I cared about was I need to find a way to help. Well, because Zelda. notably we skipped entirely past what actually happened with Ganondorf in the depths. Right. Right. Yeah. Like, so we, we didn't even see the fight. We didn't see if anybody died. We didn't other than Raru, who we know died, he sacrificed yeah. himself to seal Ganondorf down there. Like but we, what happened with Minoru? Right. And what yeah. happened with the other sages? Did well, they we know, die we, there or no, did they die later? No, we know they're fine because they were looking up at the dragon as it ascended into the heavens I, at the end of the cutscene. Oh, yeah, you're right. Okay. Anyway, point like all of this coming back to just like Ganondorf has kind of taken a side seat. He's gone back to that Palpatine role, right? The The sight unseen bad guy orchestrating everything. And now the main focus of the memories in the last couple have been Zelda and her journey. Hey, you know, Matt, I heard that sometime in the future, somehow Ganondorf returns. 
Well, he actually does that frequently. <laughs> so, yeah, <laughs> but it's always way better explained. <laughs> God. So, I, like, I love, I love reframing the memories from, it goes from being about Zelda to being about Ganondorf mm. to, again, at the end, being about Zelda. And I think that's appropriate. And I think the framing that they did with that, with the storytelling and the narrative was appropriate and emotionally effective. Yeah. I agree. It was, it was hella emotionally effective. I almost cried. So yeah, emotionally effective. 10 out of 10. Cool. Completely agree. All right. We've got two more memories to talk about. Actually, we have one, we have one memory plus a cutscene, which is not technically included as a memory. So, Going on from here, we are going to watch, what is this actually called? This is, I lost track of our individual numbering here. We should be on like 12. Uh, Let's see. So this is going to be memory number 13, although it's not technically categorized as a memory under the Tears of the Dragon quest line. This is a cutscene that plays at the very end of this quest line when, spoiler alert, and again, spoiler alert. I don't know why you're still here if you haven't done or played any of this. <laughs> and, but. and if you get mad at us for um, spoiling anything for you at this point, you only have yourself to blame and we're not sorry. Yeah, we're like two and a half hours into this. So like, <laughs> sorry. Um, OK, so this is the cutscene that plays when you board the Dragon of Light and you have successfully pulled the Master Sword. Uh, the dragon takes you into the sky. There's a cutscene that plays. So let's go ahead and watch that. All right, y'all. So just a little bit of realizing now that here's the order of operations. Once you figure out actually where to get the Master Sword from, (laughs) you board the Dragon of Light, are able to, assuming that you have two wheels of stamina, pull the Master Sword from the skull of the dragon. What happens then is you're taken above the, uh, you know, uh, you're taken above the line of clouds into a golden sunlight. You pull the master sword and then you witness the final memory cutscene. So, yeah, I mean, super powerful stuff. The, the final memory cutscene just being Zelda m- more clearly stating that, you know, she hopes that you find the sword in the future and that she spent the last 20,000 years or however long, um, imbuing it with her own power and restoring it and making it even more powerful than it was, uh, when we wielded it against the calamity. Um, and one, one really, really cool thing about pulling the master sword here is that all of the parts of the blade that were restored by Zelda's power, uh, glow a very bright white, um, almost like platinum. And then you can still see the original parts of the sword that were not destroyed by the gloom power of Ganondorf um, are a much darker steel color. Mm. Um, so you get that kind of two tone as you go further and further up towards uh, towards the hilt of the sword. It's, it's, it's really cool. I love the visual aesthetics of this master sword. This entire thing is just so this might be the most cinematic way that we've ever acquired the master sword. So just for one thing, the first time that i boarded this the the dragon of light and realized that the master sword was up at the skull that was such an incredible moment um that's such a it's so different 
than any way that we've ever gotten this sword in a Zelda game before, and it's so cinematic. But then after coming back again, uh, so the first time I found the Light Dragon, I did not have enough stamina to pull the sword, and I also didn't have all the memories yet, so it was probably worked out for the best, right? Um, after getting all the memories and coming back, there's a lot of emotion wrapped up in this because we know now that like this is Zelda. Like yeah. she made this giant sacrifice so that we could get the sword in this way right now. And so after pulling the sword, this this whole cutscene where the dragon takes you above the veil of clouds and you're in this golden sunlight and the it, it's it's so powerful and it's so beautiful. And of course, we have the classic master sword theme to kind of carry us through this, right? Like that, that adds a whole lot of feelings in and of itself on top of this whole thing. For sure. It's such a triumphant feeling moment. And I agree with you, Matt, the look of the master sword is amazing. Uh, after we pulled it, um, it's, it's healed self. There you go. It's healed self looks absolutely incredible. And, uh, you know, the cutscene that plays where Zelda is actually speaking to us, um, it's short, not a lot of substance to it. There is an interesting tidbit here in which Zelda confirms that it's not just that her sacred power has healed the Master Sword. It's that the sword is now imbued with her time and light abilities as well. Yeah, it's basically like we've harnessed the power that Raru put against the Mulduga into the blade of the sword. Like that's that is what should you should think about when you're wielding the sword against Ganondorf, we've got that crazy laser beam power in the blade of a sword. Not and that it actually does that, but like... No, but that would be really cool. <laughs> <laughs> also way OP. But yeah, like that is that that is kind of the purpose of Zelda doing this was to make the Master Sword not only healed, but better than it was so that Ganondorf couldn't do what he did when we first encountered him. He can't yeah. break it this time. Fingers crossed. Um, of course, like there's no way to know until you do the thing, knowing that we're in a video game. We know that that's probably going to be the case, but like, yeah, yeah. you know, that, that was, that was why she did what she did. And this shot is so the shot of Link standing on the light dragon skull, holding the master sword with the coils of the dragon in the background, behind him in the sky yeah it's, it's so cool it's unspeakably badass it is so great just riding dragons in general in this game is like so cool um as as someone who read the aragon series in middle school and high school um huge dream of mine is you know dragon riding so seeing link fulfill that dream for me is uh is huge like it was it was really really fun yeah, this is a an absolutely incredible moment, and like I said, a, a hugely emotional culmination to this series of of memories. And I know that we have more cutscenes and stuff to unlock. I know that there are other gaps to fill in, but honestly, I, this is just such as a step up over what was done in Breath of the Wild. It just can't can't sing its praises enough. I mean, the Breath of the Wild memories were great as well. They told a great story about Zelda coming to terms with her own destiny and fate and learning to cope with expectations of her father and what she was supposed to be doing. Um, and in, in this series of memories, she's kind of, she's doing a similar thing, but in a different way. She's mm -hmm. motivated by different reasons. Like she, she's not motivated by paternal guilt. She's motivated right. by, a desire to my love for link. Can we just say that? Like, no, she, yeah. that, that I think that is probably 
45% of her motivation. Yeah. But the other 55% is her motivation for the preservation of the kingdom and of the dream that is Hyrule. And I think being with Raru, who was the king that her father should have been, but wasn't, I think really helped to instill in Zelda the courage to do what she did. Yeah. Um, to take that step of sacrificing literally everything because, you know, she sacrificed everything against the calamity, but a lot of that felt motivated by guilt of failure. Yeah. This felt motivated by hope for a different outcome. Right. And, and I think that is a big character moment that, when your motivation, like the, the action doesn't necessarily change that much from like sealing yourself in with the calamity for a hundred years versus turning yourself into a mortal dragon. Like both are sacrifices of equal magnitude and in a lot of ways, Yeah, but the motivation behind them is, is slightly different. And I think that that's huge for character building and seeing Zelda operate from a place of love for Link and love for her kingdom, love for her people, hope for, an outcome of uh triumph is is huge and and I love seeing that and again it is an emotional incentive to fulfill what she sacrificed herself for like going into the rest of this game the stakes are not just can I defeat Ganondorf and and save Hyrule from the upheaval or whatever it is can I fulfill what Zelda thinks I can fulfill? What what she gave up for me? Can I meet that level? And um, that is that is a, an emotional impetus that is kind of unique to this Zelda game. Maybe Skyward Sword, maybe Breath of the Wild, but like not many Zelda games meet this emotional impetus. Yeah. No, I I completely agree with you. Um, just a stunning culmination. To all of this. And honestly, something that I'm glad that I got out of the way that makes it sound negative, but I'm glad that I I'm glad that I know the score on Zelda going into the bulk of this game. Right. Um, I'm very happy that I figured all of this out and in order, you know, for sure, because that that's a big thing, too. And I I do want to stress that. Like if you had done these memories out of order, that would suck. It would. And I you know, a lot of people, I think, in Breath of the Wild did do them out of order because there was no system in that game which kind of told you this memory is first, this one second, this one third. Um, Tears of the Kingdom has the map room in the Forgotten Temple. Please use it. I mean, again, if you're listening to this episode at this point, you haven't seen all of these memories, then. Well, now you know them all in order anyway. Maybe go do that. But like, (laughs) I mean, I think it is great that this game does give you a mechanism by which to organize these things. And for me, in this very first playthrough of the game, that kind of probably created a situation in which I like I'm never going to play this game this way again. Right. Now that I know this story, you know. I'm never going to just make a beeline for filling in the entire map and getting all the memories first. Really? Right. Well, why would I? Like, I know the story. The reason I did this is because I wanted to know this story. I didn't want to be spoiled on it, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, And now I don't have to worry about that. Yeah. I think there are some side benefits for me that, and also I tend to play games in similar patterns, especially games that are story heavy. Um, So I think personally for me, I will still maintain getting the memories in order. 
Um, oh, I'll still get them in order. What I'm saying is I'm not going to like devote tons of time to my early game playthrough to just go out of my way to get all the memories in order. So right? I, I think the main side benefit for me of getting them all out of the way original, like first, more or less, is that I now have the whole map unlocked for fast travel. Sure. And like that is not a small side benefit. So um, I probably will still do that just so that I am unlocking the map. And also since I'm there getting the memories like, yeah, it's I don't think it's a bad way to do it in general because you you get you get a much more open feel of the game right off the bat. Sure. So, yeah. OK. Yep. Fair enough. Let's uh, let's spare one or two minutes real quick to talk about the timeline of everything. Now that we finished all sure. of the now that we finished the memories, we know where the story ends before we get out of here. Yep. What is your feeling on what's going on with the timeline here? I really do think we're just in a totally new timeline. I think that we're separating the wild series from everything else. I think that Skyward Sword may be the only one that really fits here just because it is um, so far in the past. It is the creation of the Master Sword, which obviously is here. Fee is obviously present. So, you know, that story in some way, shape or form is is present Um, now. I I don't know. I don't. I would like to think that Ganondorf getting the stone created demise. I, I don't actually think that that's what happened. I I wish that it were, but I don't think so. Um, it's more likely that this takes place a thousand or so years after Skyward Sword, and humans have begun populating Hyrule to some extent. Maybe the people who stayed in Skyloft became the Zonai and then descended down to Hyrule once Skyloft was, could just no longer hold their population. Mm-hmm. And that's how we kind of get the the difference between the Zonai and the Hylians, but them still being able to procreate to then inevitably create the Royal line. So like that makes a certain amount of sense scientifically. Um, so, you know, I think that that's probably the most likely turn of events is that Skyward Sword happens a thousand years later ish. We come to the founding of Hyrule with Raru and Sonya and the Zonai were the inhabitants of Skyloft that are no longer a viable population, which is why they came down to Hyrule. And then from that point, we move on forward. And this the the memories that we see Ganondorf swearing fealty, the sages, all of those things is like this branch timelines version of Ocarina of Time. Um, Because that's kind of what it feels like. There are so many echoes here of what happened in Ocarina of Time. The Sealing War, which Zelda calls... She calls it the Sealing War. The Imprisoning Imprisoning War. War. She calls it the Imprisoning War, which is a term used in the Downfall timeline um, of every other game. So we have that. We have the Seven Sages. We have uh, Ganondorf. We have all of the ingredients... But none of it matches up in any way that um, uh, coincides with a singular timeline that we currently know. So it feels like we are in a fourth branch timeline here. Yeah, I I mean, I, I agree. I really do. I think that the arrival of Zelda in the distant past created a branch moment similar to Link's time shenanigans in Ocarina of Time. Yeah. The way that that created some branching of timelines. Um, I'm curious to see if Nintendo ever actually says anything official about this, right? Because we're in the same spot now that we were in 15, 
even 20 years ago, right? It's almost where, 30. Where all you, well, but but the, the the discussion around the progression of games like one game to the next, right? Mm-hmm. Like on the internet in the early days uh before Hyrule Historia, right? It's just people theorizing, you know? Right. And trying to figure out how these pieces fit together. Yeah. And Ocarina then, of Time came out almost 30 years ago, which well, is why I'm saying that. Sure, right, right, right. But I feel like it was around Wind Waker, maybe Twilight Princess, where the the discussion really heated up, you know, of like, how did these things all fit together? Right. And uh we're kind of, and we had this brief golden period where we had like post Skyward Sword. Where we had Hyrule Historia, and it was like, oh, this is telling us explicitly where all these things fall. Sure. You know? And Breath of the Wild came out, and yeah, it was a little, you know, it was not clear, but also we had some clues, and so it yeah, was kind of I mean, easy to. Everybody just kind of thought it was so far in the future that of the time, time that, like it yeah. just didn't really matter. Yeah, right? sure. So, and now we're at that point again where we're like, okay. Where do we slot this in? And what I really come back to is I don't actually care that much and don't think that it matters. I, my, my whole th- my whole read on this situation is that to me, it's always been the legend of Zelda. I approach this series with the same energy of like people telling stories over generations. Right. Mm-hmm. And stories will have. They will have same characters sometimes. They will have different characters other times. They will have commonalities between stories, but there won't be an exact linearity of events. Um, And yes, the timeline is fun. It's like whenever that gets confirmed, it's fun for us as fans to be able to pick it apart. But um, I really just think it's more it's more fun to watch the echoes of themes and characters and events as new games come out, right? Mm-hmm. And, I'm, and I'm very glad that Nintendo uh, very visibly and apparently doesn't consider themselves beholden to like keeping these things interlocked in such a rigid way to where it prevents them from innovating and doing fun new thematic things within games, right? Yeah, like I see where you're coming from. I, and this is where you and I are just very different people. And even though we were, you know, raised together and we're we're blood related, we're very different. I personally find it very satisfying to know where things fit in context. And and I, I go back to some of my time spent studying biblical history and a lot of what this is called is is hermeneutics. And that is like the study of the context of um, in, in the case of hermeneutics, the, the study of the context of scripture with what is around it. And I think that that is very true to history in general, which is why is this important in regards to what happens before and after? And like, so like I love that type of storytelling that takes those things into account. And I love that type of uh, narrative, specifically narrative that knows where it is and draws connective tissue between all those things. And like, I'm not saying, I'm not saying I'm right and you're wrong. I'm just saying like what I really like about the timeline as it is in Hyrule Historia. Like that's one of the things that Hyrule Historia really made great for me was knowing where each of the games that we played, where, where they sit and like what, what the context of the games was at large. So I I do hope that we eventually get some kind of confirmation of 
even just generally, like where this sits, like even if Nintendo came out and said, yeah, Breath of the Wild and Tears of the Kingdom, they're their own timeline. Don't consider them in the Ocarina of Time time split. Like that alone would just be more than enough for me to be happy um, and totally satisfied. And Mm. like not saying I'm not satisfied. Like I think this is a phenomenal story and I think everything they're doing is great. Um, But for me, just like a 2% buff would be knowing where it is okay well we'll see if it happens and also we'll see if we get anything confirmed as we actually go and beat this game that's we true have, we, we, we could a lot of game left to play here yes so. seriously so much <laughs> game so and we we will have a full real season about this at some point in the future so we'll talk about pretty all of far this in the future probably yeah, yeah sure yeah but anyway it's all it's it's just all fun to theorize no one's gonna right have now. to become an immortal dragon to hear it but it will be a while <laughs> Yeah, we do not expect that of any of you, so don't do it. Nor of ourselves. Although, if you have the means to do it, maybe report that to somebody. somebody. I mean, yeah. <laughs> not the CIA. Not. They'll they'll take advantage of that. Yeah. Maybe someone a little more... Second thought, maybe just keep that to yourself forever. Honestly, yeah, that's probably the safest bet. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh. Matt, this has been a really, really fun conversation. Oh, this has been probably one of my favorite episodes we've ever recorded. I mean, like just this whole format was um, was really a treat watching through this whole thing front to back with you. Awesome. Can't wait to break it down more. I mean, obviously, we're not going to get into the end game of Tears of the Kingdom. Sure. uh, Anytime soon. No. Yeah. So we have one more episode left. For those of you who don't follow us on social media or uh, on, our, on our Discord, um, this is going to be our second to last episode of Cheers of the Kingdom. Next week, we're going to be doing a Q&A session uh, with our Discord members. Um, we might even post something on Twitter just to gather some questions if we're feeling generous uh, about what you want us to talk about. We're going to come with a couple pre-prepared things, but most of all, we want to hear what you want to know about and what our opinions are on things that you have questions about. Please keep them as spoiler-free as possible. At this point, all of y'all listening know everything that we have done. So please take that into consideration when you're asking questions. Like, don't ask me what I think about end boss mechanic X, because I don't know what that is. So please don't do that. But uh, all that being said, next week, we're going to do a Q&A session. Uh, we will be live on Discord for that. So if you are part of our Discord, please tune in, hang out with us, chat us questions in real time, uh, and then hang out with us a little bit after. And maybe we'll uh, chat a little bit after if it's not too terribly late like we did last time. So um, if you're not in our Discord, now's a good time to go do that. Sounds good to me, Matt. Can be a fun episode. Always. For right now, it's 1245. Yeah, we did this way later than we should have because it's just the two of us. We had no guest constraints. We just do this to ourselves constantly. So we have no one to blame but ourselves. I'm tired and old. <laughs> and hot. It's still hot out here. Ugh. All right. Yeah, let's do it. Let's cut it. <laughs> Good pod, Matt. Well done. It was great pod. We did great. <laughs> All right, y'all. If you enjoyed today's episode, you'd like a little extra Sacred Realms in your life, you can head over to patreon.com slash sacredrealmspod and become a patron. If you've got no rupees, it's not a problem. Five-star Apple podcast reviews are a great free way to support us. More reviews means that more people see our show, and that makes us very happy. Hi, Leans. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Sacred Realms Pod for updates on the podcast and for behind-the-scenes action. Sacred Realms will be back next Wednesday with further thoughts on The Legend of Zelda Tears of the Kingdom. 
We'd love for you to play along with us and to share your thoughts on our social channels. Tears of the Kingdom can be played on the Nintendo Switch, and uh, I'm sure people are also uh, emuing it already. But if you're if you're emulating it and it just came out, please don't do that. These these devs worked really hard on this. They deserve to get paid. How about this? Please buy it before you emulate it. But, you know, if you're in there trying to figure out how to give it 4K and ray tracing after having purchased a legal copy, then you do you, boo. Sure. Totally is supportive of that. But don't emulate before you buy. No, don't do that. But in the meantime, may your hearts be full. May your arrows never miss. We'll catch y'all next week. Sacred Realms is an independent podcast production, which is produced, edited, and mixed by me, Lyndon Willoughby. Our music comes from Zelda and Chill by Mikkel and is graciously provided to us by Mikkel and Game Chops Records. Zelda and Chill is available to stream on Spotify or to purchase directly from GameChops.com. Finally, our thanks go to Nintendo for creating such exceptional and innovative experiences. 